0: Hello, everybody. Good day, good evening, good morning, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, or when you're watching this, I guess. Appreciate you coming by to another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream podcast scenario thing. I try to add a new word in there every so often just to see if it you know makes it more complicated. I appreciate it. I'm um, looking forward to getting more into the story. Um... As a reminder, the content that is part of the Merge World story now uh, is all new writing. So this is all new content that's never been heard before, except for a couple ideas I bounced off my wife to <laughs> see, see if they sounded OK. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's all new stuff, and I'm excited to get to share it. Spent about, oh, four hours today finishing up, getting ready for tonight, trying to kind to get ahead a bit in the story. Um, as a reminder, on uh, Merged Worlds is now every other Thursday night, um, but on the off Thursdays uh, is Behind the Dice, which is a live d and um, I guess you could say podcast, I mean, talking D&D stuff, working on D&D projects, making maps, painting minis, uh, designing D&D schematics, all sorts of stuff. So. Um, even on the weeks that Merged Worlds isn't there, there's still some D&D content if you'd like to come by and see it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mr. Michael Waller, good day, sir. Michael has been watching through all the Merged World stuff, asking me really cool questions, as he has. And this is his first time he's got to come see it live, so we're happy to have you, Michael. And hello, Miss Ashley and Jim. Glad to see you as well. See, today is Ashley and Jim's anniversary, and I can't think of a better way to spend one's anniversary than listening to me talk. watch my temple build excellent oh cool cool I've actually I've put a lot of uh, time into building that Uh, for folks who are listening um, I'm slowly going to start building merged worlds in Minecraft Um, I'm starting with Serenity and I started with the temple so um, that is streamed here on YouTube every Sunday night at 930 p.m. Eastern although I may start a little early this Sunday since I'm not working the other job um but that's expecting that to be a very long-term project uh, that I'm excited to work through. Uh, and I think you guys will like the, what I've been working on this week for it. Because, again, I'm going to work on it between streams because there's just going to be so much of it. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. Cool. I'm glad you saw that, too. Um, so, as normal, I'm going to give just a little bit of a recap from where we left off uh, and then merge right into the story. See how I did that there? I brought merge into it. I feel so good about myself. <laughs> so... Um, where we left off. So, basically, the adventure as it stands. um, Our heroes are just kind of hanging out in Serenity. Um, It's been about a year since uh, the big events of the attack on Serenity of the Undead, as well as the um, adventure the kids had in the Kingdom of Firemoon. And it was during this year later that uh, Dandy... Um, has a visitor into her shop, uh, another hunter uh, named Aaron. Uh, again, I want to clarify, Aaron is not Aaron, like A-A-R-N. Uh, it is Aaron, and it's like that for a reason. <laughs> but it's Aaron. Uh, he's another hunter, a bit of older one, and uh, he lets Dandy know that he's heading northwest, that far, far to the northwest, further than they've ever traveled. There's a, uh, a city that's asking for help that a group of drow, or a small community of drow, have moved into the area. He didn't have any numbers specific. Um, And since they have, over the last few years, they've started attacking the neighbors uh, and the farmsteads, and now they're at the point that they're attacking caravans between different cities um, and actually killing people. So um, the city, which has lots of people to protect the city but not the countryside, has sent out basically a, hey, we'll pay really big if you can deal with this drow problem and uh, Aaron and many others are heading that way to try to take up that cause. Our heroes, of course, have a long history with Drow. Uh, They've dealt with them on multiple occasions in the past, and Dandy, specifically, has been hunting for a specific one for a very long time, and uh, way back, way back, in the very earliest adventures of Merged Worlds, Uh, There was a Kender village that was slaughtered by a drow. uh, and He was a minion of Nylat Firemoon. And uh, Danny's been searching for him ever since. He he slaughtered a a village of Kender, I'm sorry. He and the drow. Hey, Teresa, 30 minutes? I'll take it. (laughs) I appreciate you coming by. Um, So they decide that they're going to go up there and check on the situation. Because... They've recently learned, of course, about the drow threat to Seraph and the rest of their children. Um, whether these drow have any connection with that, they don't know, but they haven't actually had a drow sighting in a while, and so that's a concern, considering this, ju- the, the whole drow issue just popped up a year earlier with the attack on Serenity. Seems kind of coincidental. Um, as well as Dandy's always in the hopes that it's that specific drow she's been hunting, So she can finally, you know, kill him because that's there's no there's no other ulterior motive there. That's that's what she's going to do. She's going to find him and she's going to kill him. Um, It's she's a little bit, just a tad bit obsessed with it. Like not to the point that it runs her whole life, but uh, drow pop up in a conversation and Dandy gets very serious for a kender. That's a big deal. So. Well, friends don't like that side of her. At the same time, they kind of like that to be over with. Not that they're fans of the guy either, of course. You know, bad guy. So they begin to head northwest, and they travel for quite a distance, farther than they've ever gone that way. Most of their adventures have historically taken every direction but north. <laughs> it's gone, most of their stuff was south, southeast, southwest, a little bit of each. So they eventually came across some land which seemed like very good land for farming, uh, good soil, that kind of stuff. Mercy, especially as a, as a queen, now has had to learn about that kind of stuff. You know, what, what's good land, what's bad land. This is prime land. It's surprising nobody lives there. Of course, there's always the possibility that this part of the world came from a world where nobody lived, right? I mean, there, there has to be assumptions that maybe there's not intelligent creatures on some worlds. Um, sometimes I wonder if there's any intelligent ones on ours. <laughs> but you know. Um, so it's always possible that chunks of land came through without any type of creatures and such. It's also an assumption that there could be planets with no life on them on merged worlds. That's something I've never really touched on before, but something that has come up recently as a question. Is it possible there could be a piece of a moon or a planet with no atmosphere? And if so, would walking into that section kill you? And I was like, I guess we'd find out, wouldn't we? Because that's a, that's not a bad idea. So I was like, oh, interesting. But so far, everything's been hospitable. But eventually, they did start to come across some farmsteads in that area. And the farms were all overgrown. The homes, most of them, fallen into ruin. Some look like they're physically destroyed. Um, but no sign of living. And they look like they've been abandoned for a very long time. So, as they are making their way northwest, they start coming across these farmsteads a little bit more often. Closer together. The, Kind of thing you'd expect if you're getting closer to a central hub of maybe a town a city or even a community of any kind you know the farms spread out further away from that the closer you get the more stuff there is so um, they start to come across the more often all with the same kind of signs um, fallen into ruin the farm has some natural you know if they're planting corn there's still probably some wild corn growing and such um, just not in neat rows. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, there's a big delay on here, so if it doesn't pop up, thank you very much, Mr. Michael Waller. Just became a member of the membership program. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you for your support. I will toast to you with my chucky milk. <laughs> and, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Now, if you're a member of the Discord, which I believe you are, I saw you pop in there today. I saw your message. Um, If you haven't yet, when you go into your Discord, uh, into the Discord, make sure you link your YouTube account to your Discord, and that will bump you up to a member there as well and give you access to all the member perks and threads inside of the Discord. So definitely want to get you those. If you have any questions with that, uh, message me after the uh, stream, and I'll help you out there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Happy to have you, sir. (laughs) So... um, They're traveling through, and of course, in the distance, finally, as it's getting closer to the evening, one of the days, they can see what appears to be the silhouette of a tower. And as they're approaching it, they start to hear a loud noise in the distance, a clanking and a crunching and a weird metal-on-metal noise. And a huge monstrosity of some type of metal beast starts coming at them from the distance. Uh, They start racing towards the tower, uh, because it's the closest thing that might offer any type of protection, 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 and as they're rushing through, Artemis, with her elven eyes and improvision, can see that there's some type of magical shield, force field, something around it, whether it'll keep them out or it's keeping something in, she can't tell. But as they're racing as quickly as they can, this this giant thing is moving quite, quite quickly and is starting to catch up. Uh, so they're racing towards this, keep hoping that whoever's inside might be able to help them. So that's kind of where we left off. And that's where we're going to start today. Because that's how stories work. (laughs) All right. So let me grab it here. Got it. Okay. So heroes, again, like I said, they're racing towards this tower. Now, all four of them are on horses. They all have their own horse. Nobody's doubling up on horses at this point. And they don't have an extra horse. Sometimes people ask that. Do they have an extra horse for supplies? They don't because they have ch- the chest of holding. So all their main supplies are in there. They carry only the immediate stuff they would need with them. So they're racing across. And again, this, like I said, the sun is going down at this point. It's getting dark. Um, everyone has some form of ability to see at night. Artemis, of course, has the best improvision. Dandy and Darcy's are relatively the same, Uh, and then Mercy has her circlet, which lets her see pretty much everything. So, for Mercy, it just, everything, it doesn't go dark, it just goes black and white, because she doesn't really see in color at that point. Um, She just sees, so there's also no shadows and things like that, so she couldn't, somebody was moving, she wouldn't see their shadow, because there's no light reflected there. There's no light source for her vision. Um, But it just, everything goes black and white, but she can see perfectly clear. So they're racing, and this big, loud, clanking thing is chasing right after them. Uh, So let me grab that page. Ah, here we are. As I mentioned before, there's no signs of life at the tower. There's no lights coming from any windows, no torches outside, no movement they can see. If it wasn't for the shield around it that, at this point, Artemis has called out everyone else's attention to. As they get closer, everyone can see it, of course. Um, As they're racing in towards that... There's still no signs of life inside. And that's not what they were hoping. Hey, Midnight. They were hoping that, you know, someone would... Because let's be honest, this thing is very loud. They can hear it, and there's no doubt if anyone was in that tower, they would hear the clanking of the thing as well. So if they're like, well, maybe someone wake up and turn a light on and come help us out. That's not happening. So there's more concern. So they start, again, as they're racing across this relatively flat land... Um, you know, yelling out to each other, shield up ahead! Do we go around or go at it? This thing's catching up. You know, just those kind of things you'd expect yelling. Um, they decide to go for it, see if they can get any attention from anyone inside, potentially pop it open, and then if not, try to go around it. If nothing else, uh, keep the creature chasing them. It's, uh, if you ever play video games, it's, it's a strategy called kiting. I think I may have said it here before. You Somebody goes through and gets every monster's attention so the monsters are chasing them where that person is really leading them to their very specific place maybe where there's an ambush or something like that dandy very commonly is used in that regard she can sneak up close get someone's attention and it starts racing through the trees and the goblins or whatever are chasing after her and then they the group of goblins all of a sudden come into a small clearing where darsh and mercy are waiting and they just ran into a blunder so In the early days, that happened a lot. That was a a sound strategy they used quite often. Um, uh, But in this situation, they don't want to try... With its speed, they don't want to try to keep kiting it around the tower. Eventually, their horses are going to get tired. They're going to get tired. So, as they're busting themselves to get up there, they're approaching up on the the shield this time. The shield itself is probably a good 100 yards... Let me see that for you guys Yeah, 100 yards, 100 meters, depending where you are. They're close enough that we can say it's the same thing. Um, Away from the tower itself. So again, and it's it's shaped kind of like a snow globe, if you will. So it's rounded over top of the tower. The whole tower is covered. Um, Whether it goes underground, of course, you can't see. There's no way to know. Uh, But they are. It does not sound like a a, a, just like a cylinder where there's a space up top at all. Oh, hold on a minute. Come here, midnight listen. You can't come on the desk while I'm telling the stories, okay? You can say hi to everybody. Okay? He does not like getting picked up. Come here. Come sit on your chair. There you go. You sit on there, okay? That's it. You stay there. (laughs) He's been wanting attention today. Okay. So, and again, (laughs) they decide to make speed for it. Now, Mercy's pushing her horse the fastest, and she's outpacing the other three. Uh, Dandy being the lightest, you think would be able to do that. But Mercy is an expert horseman. Uh, the other three are, are, are very good because they've been on horses many, many times. Um, but Mercy is horse. She deals in horses. She raises horses, she spends a lot of time on horses. Uh, and so not only training them herself, learning to do that, she's quite an expert it. So she's able to push her horses a little bit better. And all the horses are Mercy's horses. That's why there's always several big and strong ones ready for Darsh should be needed. So they're all very high-quality horses, um, which, oddly enough, makes a difference. There are different qualities of horses. Just like different qualities of swords in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, but she's able to get ahead. And her goal is to try to get up close and take a whack at that shield. They haven't got any attention from anybody inside. Any signs that anybody knows they're coming. So her thought is if I can get up close and whack the shield, I can find out whether it's like electric, is it magic? It may hurt me some, but if I can get up there and take a whack at it or or poke it with it whatever before everyone else shows up, I can wave them on if there's no way through, right? If it is dangerous or gonna hurt us, as long as I'm not killed or knocked unconscious, then at least we can Everybody else, I'm like, no, keep going around, I can hop on my horse and keep catching up, Um, because she'd be in the best place to do that. Um, Also, should they need to do that, her goal is to try to get the thing's attention and kite it away from the others, for the same reason. Better horsemen, if she can get the others more time, it's more likely Mercy might be able to escape alone with her horse, if she can make it to some relatively rough terrain for the creature to follow... Maybe some type of canyon type thing, mountain thing she could squeeze through that the big thing couldn't. There's more chances Mercy would be able to evade it than anyone. On foot, Dandy is is the best in this situation. But on a horse, it's going to be Mercy. So she gets ahead and she maybe has 30 seconds to get off the horse, test the shield before everybody would get up there. Because the shield is definitely what they're assuming it is at this point. Some type of spell that's, again, keeping something out, keeping something in. Normally, they would go much slower in these situations to try to determine that before trying to mess with it. They don't have time. That thing is right on their tails. So Mercy hops off, and the first thing she does is just throw her Morning Star at it. She can teleport it back to her hand. If it bounces off, she knows it's solid. If it sparks, maybe she knows it's electrical. Try to get some reaction from it. So, what she does is she tosses her Morning Star, and it goes right through, hits the ground on the other side. Okay, test number one, pops it back into her hand. Second one, she swings at it manually. Because spells can do different things. The Morning Star goes right through it. They're almost on her at this point. One last test. She has to take her hand and tries to touch the shield. And when she does, her hand goes right through it. So immediately she's back onto her horse, waving everyone through. Whether or not they can try to get into this tower and use it as a way to defend against the creature, they don't know. Again, situation, get on the other side of it, try to split it up, use that original plan to have Mercy kite it off while the others try to escape. Maybe they can hide in the tower while she has it chase them out, whatever they have to do. Everybody sees that she's doing it, and as they're kissing up to her, Mercy passes through it with her horse, and she goes through it just fine. She doesn't feel weird. There's no type of reaction, anything. Seeing this, of course, this all happens in just a very few seconds, but all four of these are very experienced adventurers. They've had many friends and allies and enemies that have used magic to help them and hurt them, so they're quite familiar with a lot of what would be the magical basics, especially Artemis. So seeing that she's going through, at this point, okay, number one, is the shield going to do anything at all? Is it there for looks? Probably not. You just don't make a big pink shield around there for nothing. So whatever its effect is going to be, at this point, is is it a ward to keep something in? Because they could go through it just fine, and Mercy does not have time to test going back out of it again. So now there's that concern, but they're kind of stuck in a spot. There's not much else they can do. They have to push forward. And Mercy's on her horse and through the shield, and just a couple seconds later, the others come through as well. So they are just racing to the tower. And as I said, it's only... a Hundred meters, hundred yards. At this point, it's not that far. Especially if the other three are already at full speed. By the time you know Mercy's getting close to the tower, they've already caught up their group again. And they get there and they jump off real quick. Prepare their fighting stances, right? Prepare to see if they can find a door in. They stop, whip their weapons around, and Mercy and Darsh have got their weapons out, ready to try to defend against this. Saying, "Well, Artemis and Dandy look for a way in, but they don't have to." The creature is stopped just outside of the shield. And it's just kind of standing there looking at them. As before, they're still not wasting time because maybe it's just thinking about it. Dandy and Artemis really quickly start looking for an entrance. And the tower itself um, is smaller, gets thicker at the base right? It's got a couple small buildings around it. One that looks like it's a small thing that's meant for um, horses, like a small corral kind of thing. Not, not a full-size barn, if you will, but a small corral that several horses could be kept in. No signs of any horses in there now. No hay or anything that's still there. Again, the place itself looks like it's starting to fall apart as well, though it's much sturdier than the farmhouses. This looks like it was here longer or here first, um, so some of those outer building things around it, because there's a, a, what appears to be a small forge, uh, pretty well-made forge, an anvil and all the stuff you'd need to be forging stuff, um, but the roof of it, which was probably wooden, that part's maybe partially caving in kind of thing. The elements over time would wear that down. So they only have to go small ways around the tower before they come to an entrance. Um, it's got a big big, big wooden door. And I'm not saying like giant big. Like, Darsh could probably still just duck a little bit and get in. It's a good-sized door. Um, and they could see windows on it, but still no lights. There's no sounds coming from inside the tower. So they quickly rush back to Darsh and Mercy. They don't try to go in themselves. Dandy would have liked to try the door, but again, a old pink magic spell could be something magic on the door. And that's not something Dandy's equipped to deal with. But once they get back, they see that the thing is still there, although it seems to be like kind of stepping to the side a little bit and looking, and stepping the other way a little bit and looking, and it's definitely looking at them. And the clanking noises when it moves are pretty loud metal on metal grinding, but they don't hear anything like an engine or anything like that. There's no rumbling like, a, like it's a clockwork thing, but it does, it is definitely made of or wearing large amounts of metal. It appears to be made of metal, but doesn't necessarily mean it's not metal wrapped around something. If so, that thing is bigger than the average giant. So that's something to be concerned with. But they did see a dead giant. So it could be, right? I mentioned one of the hands. (laughs) Hello, Buffy. Now you're here. Uh, It's like a big sickle, big scythe. And one hand, Farmer Kirk was a big uh, uh, like axe. No, 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 no. Stay over there. Um, all the cats are showing up because they want treats, but it's not time. Yet. My wife will be down in a minute. Um, so, the creature's kind of looking around at them, and, and, and Darsh and Marissa are like, okay, let's make our way to the door. And as they start to make their way to the door, the creature's moving along the, the wall, because he it obviously has to go a much wider circle than they do, but it's trying to keep an eye on it. The thing doesn't speak. It doesn't make any noises that would make them think. That uh, maybe it's speaking and they don't understand. It. There's no language or anything they can hear, unless it's outside the realm of their hearing. No, no, no. stay over here. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, so you just over there, sweetie. So they um, they get to the door, and of course, at this point, they need to find out whether it's magic locked or not. And so when they do, they're going to have Artemis check that because Artemis can detect magic and find out if there's magic or anything on the door. If there is, then Dandy has to be a little bit even more careful because it may be magically trapped. But Artemis tests the door, and in fact, yes, it is magically defended. It has some type of magic spell blocking on it. And so Artemis has to attempt to dispel it. Now, with dispel magic, it's, uh, again, we've discussed this before, to dispel a spell cast by someone else, you always there's, there's a chance you can do it, depending on your level versus theirs. Here you go. Your level versus theirs. But um, if you're a higher level, you have a much better chance of success. If you're the same, an okay chance. Lower level, it's going to be tough to do. And it's, you never know. When you're casting a spell, you don't know if the other person was stronger than you, if they're a stronger spellcaster or not. So Artemis has to make that attempt. She doesn't try to dispel the shield thing, because at this point, it's not doing anything to them. And it may be keeping that monster out. So they're okay with it, for now anyways, until they learn differently. And she casts her spell. And very quickly, it fades. Uh, She can tell that whoever person casted it had skill, but definitely was not, like, super uber powerful, by any means. Um, Which yay and nay, right? Because, oh, cool, we're not going to walk into a lich or something that's going to destroy us, hopefully. At the same time, may not be anybody here who can help us either. (laughs) So, kind of a doggy-dog situation there. So, they get that magically done. At that point, Dandy proceeds to check the door for traps. She does not find any. So, there's no mechanical traps or anything of that nature. Um, So, there's that. And then she... uh, checks if it's locked. And it is, in fact, locked. So she picks that. That only takes a second. It's a very basic lock for Dandy. She's a little disappointed. She was hoping for a better challenge. Turtle says, Who needs to know all the lore? I'm just here for the cool bath. <laughs> sure, Turtle. Sure you are. <laughs> Thanks for coming by, man. Um, so they open up the door, and they are ready to go inside. They, of course, then default to standard party order. Right? Dandy first, check them for traps, followed by Darsh, ready to squish things. Keep your squishy in the middle, that's Artemis number three, with Mercy at the back to, again, protect Artemis and protect the group from behind. So, that's the, the way they're going in. Dandy's moving forward, and she, at this point, I mean, as they start to move inside the building, they don't see, or she doesn't find any traps, at least not immediately. The... Building itself clearly has not been habitated or been inhabited. My language is bad today, uh, in a very long time. Um, itself looks like it was a home that was very comfortable. Just checking the first couple rooms, then they come in and there's like a, a bit of a hallway, and then of course there's your classic stairs that go up the tower, a couple small chambers on the on the bottom. They can see it was probably a comfortable living room, kitchen area. Um, some basic stuff. No signs of beds down here on the, the base floor. Um, but everything is rotting. Like even blankets that have sat... If you made your bed and left it sitting there for 100 years and came back... It would not be in good shape. And that's what this looks like. like. The place looks like it's just not had anybody in it. But it doesn't look ransacked. You know what I mean? It's not like anybody was grabbing all their stuff and getting out of here fast. There's no signs of battle... Um, as they were checking the tower coming in, there was no signs that anyone had attacked at the outside of the tower, and nothing inside that would make it look like it had been defended by anybody. So, again, why is it in such good shape and abandoned? Is this under the big thing? Probably. <laughs> but let's see what. So they begin to start searching the tower. The base floor doesn't really reveal anything um, other than. Some items, there are some old, probably old books on shelves. Quite a few old books. Um, They don't mess with books. A, because they look like they're going to fall apart the second you touch them anyways. And B, uh, if you don't know what the books are in a world like this, you don't just rifle through them because a magic book, if you're not a mage, can cause you some serious problems. A non-mage looking at a mage book will uh, have a potential to have negative magical effects. But looking throughout the rooms and such, their first thought is a wizard lived here. It's kind of the feel of the place and design. Lots of old books, writing tables, probably with some writing, an old desk kind of thing. Looks like it was well written. They don't see anything that looks like a mage's laboratory or anything. But, of course, they haven't gone upstairs yet. They're still on the base level. And Most wizards like to put their stuff up near the ceiling. Why? Because it's more dramatic, I guess. I'm not sure. But wizards seem to do that. Uh, either it's down in the basement or it's up really high. I think that's from the Frankenstein concept where mad scientists do their stuff way up high so they can attract lightning. I think that's kind of carried over into fantasy because unless it's in a deep, deep dungeon, it's usually at the top of a tower is where you find all the wizard stuff. So uh, I am perfectly fine falling into that trap. So they decide they're going to start... <laughs> keep it away from the Kendras. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so they begin making their way up the tower, um, and as they're moving up, they don't—you don't go too far before they reach another level. Inside this level uh, has what appears to be, when you get up to there, the stairs continue on, and there are really just uh, imagine you get up to the level. Sorry, the building circle, right? There's just a hallway in the middle with two doors across from each other, so it looks like two half moon. Half-circle doors, right? All right, Teresa, have a good one. Thanks for coming by. I know, man. Wizards just can't settle down and behave, can they? (laughs) So they go up there and they're like, okay, do we go up or do we keep checking? Well, these guys are intelligent. They're going to check the level before they move up. Never leave a threat behind you. Wise thoughts. So they get to the two doors. Again, Artemis checks. Not mage locked. Excellent. Or not, inspelled in that way. Danny checks them they are locked but they're not trapped she's very easily able to unlock both of them both rooms are clearly a bedroom um there's nothing that really differentiates them at this point there probably was maybe there's some old like flower pots there that could have flowers in them and such uh, any clothing they find would is all rotted and lost its color, so it's hard to say, well, this was a, a guy robe or a girl robe. And, and to be honest with you, in magic colors of robes don't always denote gender or anything. A lot of times they just denote sometimes your affiliation or what kind of mage you are, what your alignment is, and that differs from world to world as well. So there's no common rule for mage dressing a specific way. Clerics are a little different. On most worlds, clerics still dress in the same colors of the gods. The gods themselves have their favorite colors, I guess. And that's how kind of clerics dress up as. But uh, when it comes to wizards, there's not quite as many rules there. Except for, you know, no swords and wear robes kind of thing. The rooms, again, well kept. Does not look ransacked. The drawers are open. There's nothing stuffed on the floor. It's like someone got up, made their bed... Cleaned the room, walked out, locked it, and never came back in again. And both rooms kind of have that feel to it. Um, like whoever was there intended to come back and did not. They, of course, searched the rooms themselves, what few pieces of furniture they tried to open drawers and stuff again, inside a lot of just lumpy mess. Hey, what's up, Fuji? Just a lot of like mess, old clothing, old cloth. Some of it they may be able to kind of pull up and say, okay, this looks like a robe. This looks like was pants. Maybe some old buckles, some old nasty sandals that have shrunken like a raisin at this point. In case you haven't noticed, I'm trying to imply it's been a long time since anyone's been in here. so I'm being subtle. (laughs) So they don't find anything of interest here, so they decide to go back up the tower. At the rate that they're climbing the tower, they can tell, approximately, that the next level should be right above the top. So the tower itself has a ground floor, a mid-floor, which is the bedrooms, and then the top. It's not a super-giant tower, just an okay-sized one. So they make their way up to the top. At the very top is just a door. Once they open that, they walk into what does look like a wizard's laboratory. Kind of. It really does, but it doesn't. It has a lot of the things you'd expect from a Wizards' laboratory, beakers and such glass wouldn't have broken. Some of it's just sitting there, covered in dust. You know, um, time will mess up some things, but it doesn't seem to mess up others. You know, um, and in this room specifically, which again I should say they checked the door, they locked, unlocked it. It was locked, but um, it was not magically ensorcelled in any way. So they go inside and they're looking around. This room, like I said, is seems much more untouched. Nothing in here looks like it's gone bad. There's a small shelf across the room that has a couple books on it that have very wizardly looks about them, so they decide not to touch those right away. There are a lot of jars on the wall with different materials in them. Um, look like dried this leaves, or dried of that things of that nature, which in that bottle could still be perfectly fine, depending on what the wizard was using it for. But there's also signs of a mini forge up here, and that's odd, because it's not easy to just carry up rock and iron ore and things up to the top of a tower and start hammering it out. So, looking at it, it looks like it's made for smaller pieces. So, maybe this is a wizard who made magic items. Maybe he has a little jewelry. Maybe sitting here, tinking away at a ring or a necklace or something. That's what they're looking at, and the tools that they see seem to be for much smaller pieces, no big tongs, everything's relatively small. So they're thinking, okay, well, whoever lived here, maybe they made small magic stuff. Of course, the main thing that they find in the room is the remains of someone, because that had to happen. There is sitting on a chair against a wall across across the room as they enter the remains of someone once living. This person is clearly dead, but clearly not undead. Dandy, taking no chances, pulls out silver daggers and such, and proceeds up very carefully. Everybody's weapons are drawn. They're leaving this up to Dandy to test it. Dandy gets up close to it, doesn't move, and she stabs the, the thing very, very quickly. Um, First with silver dagger, that doesn't work, and then she shoves a wooden stake through its heart. It, it just starts to crumble apart. It's still wearing its robes, but the skin has all gone at this point. It's just skeleton in clothing. Which, again, is a little odd, because the clothing looks very dusty, but it hasn't faded like it has in all of the other rooms. Uh, But definitely the corpse inside of it starts to fall apart. Dandy gives everybody the thumbs up, and they come over and start checking it and checking the whole room. Because now they need to figure out what's going on. There is a window up here. Artemis goes and checks that out first. And at this point inside, they've lit a torch. It's dark inside, it's dark outside. So as they're coming up to this top level, they did have a torch and a light source. They kind of take that uh, away from Artemis a bit, and she gets up there, and she starts looking out around. And she can see their horse is tied up down there, so she knows she's looking out the front of the place. Um, and while well, she's looking out there, she... Does not see the creature. At all. Anywhere. Uh, Michael's question. So the thing chasing him, like the big robot creature in Wild Burning Crusades in the peninsula. That is a great, great example. Uh, It chases him like that. It's not quite that big, but it's close. And if you're a WoW fan, then you're going to get this way more. It looks a lot more like the Harvesters in the... um, Oh, I can't remember the the Westfall. I believe it is right outside of uh, the Alliance headquarters. There's a little town where all the little farming thrashers are going around. You got to beat them up. It looks more along the lines of that creature, like, like for visual appear. Like I mentioned, it looks. Some of them look like they might be had, had hay in them at some point, and some type of like cloth things on their head. It looks a little bit more like that. Uh, but conceptually, yes, it's a lot more like the creatures walking around in the Hellfire Peninsula. It's just stomping along super fast uh, with no signs of slowing down. So, good, yeah, very good example of that. I'm assuming many of the people who ever hear this that a chunk of them has probably played some World of Warcraft. The community does seem to blend over quite a bit, so that would probably help some folks figure that out. <laughs> good example, thank you. Okay. But there's no sign of it now. They don't see anything. They didn't hear it walk away, but that's not itself a huge surprise. The tower itself still well, well concerned. said the tower itself looks to be in very good condition. Uh, if it blows up, it only takes out the tower. <laughs> right. right. Um, so there's that. So they start, like I said, they're looking around the place. And next to the body, on the robes, laying on the ground is an open book. Not a regular book. I mean, it looks like just a regular book. Um, give me one second. And uh, it's laying on the ground. There's obviously what it looks like an old feather and a little thing on the ground as well. Looks with a stain on the floor. Looks like ink, like it just fell. Um, so there were no signs other than Dandy stabbing, that this person died by violence. It looks more like they just sat there and died, but it looks like they were writing in the book either shortly before they did um, or passed away with it in their hands. So whether they natural death or not, it's hard to tell. So they look around, and they don't find anything else major of value. For a wizard, they probably would You know, the test tubes and things like that. And they may gather some of that up before they leave because they have, you know, Mercy has her battle mages and such. and Quality mage equipment is not always easy to come across. Um, And as for the little bottles of what could be spell components, she doesn't know what they are, but people back at her mage tower might. So, you know, they may become of use. So, she... They they don't find anything else. They decide that they're going to go ahead and take a look at this book. And, you know... It doesn't appear to be a magic book. Like I said, it's just laying open with the pages kind of wrinkled up. They pull it out and straighten it up a little bit. Um, And Artemis casts a brief spell to see if it's magic. there's any type of magic on it. And she does not get any reaction. They decide to go ahead and give it a look. The book's not large, and very quickly they realize that it's a journal of some kind. Um, The book doesn't have a lot of writing in it. Looks like really whoever wrote in it just wrote several pages and then never got any further. The other thing they find is an amulet of some kind that's hanging from the mage's neck. Where it was until the body collapsed. Now it's just in the bones, right? So, grab that part. Got it. So, again, everything that they see age-wise appears that all this happened before the merge did. So the merge does not appear to be a, a cause of any of the damage and such that they're seeing. So when they open up the journal, they start looking through. It only has really just a couple entries, and they don't appear to be too far apart. They're not dated, or at least not in a number sequence that they recognize or understand. So if it is, it could have been years of a planet, You know how they kept track, that they don't know, you know? There we go. So it's in basic common, so they don't have any problem reading it. Uh, that is a question I've gotten: How is it that every world has the same languages? That's a question I got from my characters very early on: How is it we all speak the same languages? I' ba- basing it on the fact that every world would have had the same gods, right? Because in this universe, in the merged world, there is a group of gods that created this universe. Every world doesn't have their own. They may know them by slightly different names and such sometimes, but they're still the same gods. That's why the clerics still dress so much the same. If a god's going to have rules and say, hey, you can't use this weapon, probably going to feel the same way on another world. Um, And since most languages, early languages, would have come from the worship of deities and such... Uh, if we look at even our own evolution. I mean, that type of thing is what brought a lot of people, That and farming, the two things that brought people together. Um, it's kind of the same scenario. So Sometimes they'll find writing that's kind of the same, but not exactly. You know what I mean? They can, they can decipher it out, for better or worse. If I'm an elf, I can tell this is some kind of elvish. If I go through it, I can figure it out. Uh, so, just to kind of touch on that, because it is a question that I've had. So, basically, the journal doesn't talk much about the area or what it was like it's written obviously by the person who uh, lived here um, and f- from the writing in the description it was a male um, mention does discuss that he is a wizard you know he's a mage and he talks about how the community had been under regular attack by a group of giants and that the giants have been killing animals stealing crops, eating people, you know, normal giant stuff, right? So, been taking on the giants. Um, and that the people of the community were very afraid. They had sent and asked for help from the king, but had received no response. The mage, turns out he his specialty was also, because again, we talked about this before, mages have specialty in Merge Worlds, his specialty was machines. He created magical machines. That's what he did. And for the community, he had created these small harvester that helped the people keep, keep, uh, keep harvesting their crops and such. Um, and that, from the descriptions, is the things that the heroes saw in some of the fields while they came through. Um, it appears that he kind of invented those, and he would made them for the community, Uh, and the community uh, used them for workforce. It seems that there was some type of situation where the kingdom had historically um, been based on slavery and things and that these group of people had moved far to the edge of the king's land because they didn't agree with that and so instead they decided to create machines that could help so that they didn't have to do that and want to participate in that type of thing they, they deplored it. So the machines were helping. Now the wizard was building a big one because they wanted to expand. There were a lot of woods in the area, and having a large one that could chop through trees and carry heavy stuff and help be used for building would be overwhelmingly useful. So when the giants started attacking, where the giants came from, no one knows. They just showed up one day and started attacking the area, and they appeared to have lived nearby in a hill or a cave, something like that. Um He decided to see if maybe the giant harvester he was building that was meant to help take care of the village and cut lumber and help crops on a much, much higher degree um, could be used as defense. So he really started busting hump on that. Started working hard and getting it out as quickly as he could. And he used his spells to create what was supposed to be a giant harvester. That's what it was for. He called them the farmhands, mechanical farmhands. And once it was built, and he cast his spell, and it was successful, because he said he didn't know if it would, he'd never tried to cast one of this magnitude before. Um, he was using spells that he had in books that he'd never tried, uh, from his master been passed to him kind of thing. And he was casting this spell and it worked. The harvester came alive, just like it did on the smaller ones. And it was sent out to deal with the Giants, and it was incredibly successful. The Giants, at first, not sure what it was, just came out with regular attacks, and it just started cutting them down. The few that fled, it followed. They got tired, it didn't. And once it finally caught them, it dealt with the rest of the Giants. And then it came back home. That's what it was, that's what it was supposed to do. When it came back, well, he's like, okay, now I have to kind of Unmagic this thing so I can recast it to be just a farmhand, right? We don't need this like this all the time. And so he tried to turn off the spell. And he couldn't. It's not supposed to happen. According to his notes, it wasn't supposed to happen at all. He thought, well, maybe I got it wrong. Did a little more research and tried casting it again. And again, it didn't work. And that's when it tried to attack him. Unfortunately, somehow the spell had empowered this thing enough that it, once it had completed what it was supposed to do, it took control of itself. It was alive, for all intents and purposes. Um, but it's in main part training, if you—I I, want to say programming—but it's not a computer. But the spell of that thing, the spell cast upon it, was to give it the thing to destroy threats. Well, he was trying to uncast the spell he was viewed as a threat. So now it was trying to take him down. He managed to escape. He hid and was able to get away. But then the harvester began attacking the people for the same reason. He viewed them as threats. Or at least that's what the wizard is assuming based on his notes. He said he couldn't communicate with it. But any time he came out, whatever he tried to do whatever he could, it would just start attacking people, and literally within just a very small like day to two day period was just going around the countryside killing everything now he had a spell that he cast on the keep itself oh, he hadn't cast, it had been cast even before him it was cast by a, hey Dr. Law what's up? had been cast by, I guess, his father. Whoever passed the spell books and the training on to him could have been his master, his father. He, it doesn't really say. It just says the elder that passed it to him. Had cast a spell on the tower because they were this was their specialty that would not allow magically ensorcelled machines to pass through it. So, this, the, the harvester couldn't get through. At first, It tried banging on the shield to it. It was more solid than anything it could do. But once it couldn't get through, it went back to just tearing up the countryside. Now all this was going on, he had been hidden, he tried to get back out, and he tried to join up with a bunch of the locals, and they tried to attack it. They're like, okay, maybe if we work together, we can, I can get in there if it's busy with them, I can uncast unca- this spell, I can get this thing turned off. Screw trying to reprogram it, let's just get it turned off and tear it apart at this point. Now its now it's, it's killing people. And he was unsuccessful even then, and people just began to cut down. And again, he had to run back to the keep, and he barely made it in, activating the shield. But there wasn't anything else he could do. He tried, you know, hoping he could see people trying to get to him, but whenever anybody did, it would just show up and cut them down. It didn't help that the large ones seemed to somehow take control of the smaller harvesters, and then those were going around destroying things. Now at this point of reading the story, our heroes you know chatting about what they see, like we didn't get attacked by any of the little ones, but they start talking about it. Those things were pretty rusted out, you know. They probably weren't built quite as sturdy as this big one, so over time as they rusted out, fell apart, they probably lost whatever magic they had in them, and that's in fact the case that happened. He made it back. Smaller harvesters and smaller, larger, attacking things. He was injured quite badly, but he managed to. Yeah, use what few healing potions he had on hand to sustain himself. Now he does but at this point begin talking to them. He's saying, if you're you know, kind of the whole if you're reading this, he says that I, you know, I, I tried for months to find a way to shut it down. But anytime I even came close to the shield, it would show up, like it knew where he was at any given time. And it would come at come at him and try to break through. If he went back in the tower, it would disappear. But he tried everything he could. He studied for months and such. But as he was struggling to try to find a way, there was no healer. The injury had got infected. Got you know, started to spread. And unfortunately, he was he was ill at the time of writing this and knew he probably wouldn't live much longer. The one thing he does say though, and this is the part that catches them, this is the part that makes them all like, hmm? You start looking around is it asks him to forgive him and please not to blame his daughter. The only thing he could do to protect his daughter was to cast a spell on her, putting her asleep, Until hopefully he could find a way to defeat the thing or find a way to get help. Anything he sent out for help didn't work. He had no way, he wasn't powerful enough to send spells of communication, he didn't have that. So according to him, his daughter was hidden here in the tower and a sleep spell cast upon her that only his amulet could unspell. If you're here, then obviously, you're reading this, then either I'm dead or it's dead, because how in the world could you have got here if it didn't, right? And, you know, it just gives basic instructions to use the amulet to, to, to save her. But it begins to start, you are know, kind of saying, you know, to, you know, it's, it's giving the instructions on how to save her and then it kind of trails off the ink writing gets a little bit messier messier and then it stops and it's, it's very possibly died in the middle of writing that area but you know it does have the whole please forgive me for what I've done I was only trying to help save my people and in the end I doomed them kind of a thing so they've got this amulet in their hand and they're like okay and it's, uh, it's, like, it's like a smooth rock right with symbols that have been carved into it they aren't glowing or anything it looks like a, a, a nice rock with a cool symbol in it they're like, okay, well, I didn't see a daughter. Did you see a daughter? And they're like, I didn't see no daughter. Danny. They're like, okay, now we've got to search again. What if someone's already been there? If that was the case, why would the book still be on the ground and the amulet on the guy's neck? That doesn't make sense. So they decide they're going to start looking around. And they start searching the place. They don't find anything on the upper floor. They search it thoroughly, right? Nothing in that laboratory they can find. They go back down to the bedrooms. Now they're searching under beds and such, trying to see if there's secret passageways behind closets or whatever the case may be. Absolutely nothing is found. So they get downstairs. They're searching this area, and lo and behold, it's Dandy who finds it. And it usually is. But Dandy finds the hidden passageway. It's actually through the fireplace, um, if a nice fire was roaring, you know, no one would think to try to climb in there and find it, but no fire has been lit in that hearth in probably 100 or 200 years at this point, minimum. So when searching around, she finds the latch that opens up a door, and he has to slide through, but Darsh is able to squeeze his way through. It clearly was meant for humans. On the other side of it is just a narrow hallway, where again, Darsh is kind of walking sideways at this point, a small set of stairs that go down. And it leads to an underground area underneath the main floor of the temple. Or a towel. Tower. No, towel. Good lord. Tower. Woo! I told you guys my words are all bumbly up today. <laughs> so <laughs> So they get in there and they and they're looking in there. They're very careful to come into the room. Right? It's a wizard, he casts a spell in there. They gotta make sure they don't they don't walk in there and get sleep spelled. He didn't get to finish writing whatever he was talking about could have been whatever you do don't go in there they don't need that kind of drama so they decide you know artemis casts a spell she doesn't on the entryway there's no door down here but there's an entryway and they can kind of see through there okay they've still got their torches lit up and such and they're like okay well it looks like there's some big shapes in there and such don't look like people offhand danny's like i'm going to step through they do their classic what they always do tie a rope around Dandy, and they go fishing. (laughs) Darsh stands back there ready to if she does start to fall over like she's falling asleep, wheel her back out of there kind of thing. And uh, she gets in there and, of course, nothing happens. She starts looking around and she's like, okay, I think it's okay. So the rest of them come on through. Darsh has to kind of scrunch down a little bit in this room. Just because his horns would hit the ceiling, but it's not horrendous. In the room are several, what almost could be described as coffins. Uh, actually they would be, look a little bit more like Egyptian sarcophagi, if you will. Uh, sarcophagus, but without a lid, right? Leaning up against a wall, just a, like a, a maybe a, a, a bathtub kind of shape thing with an indent for where a person could lay in it. And it looks like there's a space for four of them uh, sit across from each other. And in the middle of the room is a little pedestal where it looks something could sit on top of it, but there's nothing there. Three of the coffins are completely empty. Scoffers, whatever we want to call them. We'll call them a rock bed. Three of the rock beds are empty, but the fourth one is not. In this one, they can see what appears to be a young human woman, probably in her very early 20s, 22, 23 at the oldest. Appears that she has long brown hair. She's cute, I guess, you know. Plain, but not like not like dropped, gorgeous kind of thing. But you know, she's like an average, nice person. She is dressed in a dress and uh, appears to have on a robe as well. Uh, whether or not it's a mage's robe or whatever, they can't tell. She has no cleric symbol hanging around her neck, but when they get close, they can see a small sheen of movement over top of her. Uh, not quite like the pink shield, but the same thing except blue. You know what I mean? So it's like a blue sheen over top. They're like, well. It's a different color. It may work differently. I'm not sticking my hand through that one quite yet. But it kind of looks like this room was set up for this purpose and set up for more than one person. Now, the guy said it was passed on to him from someone else, so maybe this is something that was used by the previous people or whatever, and he had used it to save his daughter. There's no telling. So they start looking around, and again, there's clearly something used to sit on the middle of that pedestal. It's perfectly built for something round, like a glass ball or an onyx ball. Something round would fit into it. It's designed specifically for that. But No signs. They, they, they don't remember seeing anything in the temple. temple. Why well, do I keep saying temple? I promise you it's not a temple. I just keep saying the wrong word. <laughs> Nothing in the tower that would have fit. Uh, I can always look again, but they didn't really feel a need to at this point. They have the amulet, so they start looking for that. And they, Dandy, while wiping away kind of the dirt and the dust, on the bottom of the sarcophagi that the girl is in, there is a small space that looks like the amulet would fit into pretty evenly. So, they take the leather thong that's kind of wrapped around the top of it, so they just have the stone, because that would have been in the way, and they set it inside. Uh, Rune symbol thing facing out. Because that's just How magic works, right? It has to get all cool and glowy. And it does. It glows blue as well. And they're like, is there a word we're supposed to say? You didn't write a command word. And they're discussing what else they should do when the sheen just kind of goes and fades out. And they're looking at her for just a second. And then her eyes open. And she screams. Loudly. Everybody falls back. Reaching for their weapons like what? What is it? She gets up and she, she's looking at them. And she immediately starts demanding who they are. Who are you? What are you doing here? She doesn't ask where am I? She seems to know where she is. She's not looking around loudly. She's looking at them. She starts saying who are you? What are you doing here? How did you get in here? Where is my father? they're kind of like, that's a lot of questions. Come, give us a second. Calm down. That's a lot of questions. Let us answer a couple of them. We'll move on to the rest. Chill up. And, they, you, know, they, you know, Artemis steps forward. She kind of, you know, takes her hand and she shows the ambulance. She goes, my name is Artemis. I am a cleric of healing. I worship the life, you know, father of, heal, of health, of life, and blah, 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 blah. And the girl starts to immediately... Seem a bit more relieved, like, oh, okay, cleric of good. Like, okay, you are not going to sneak in here and stab me. You're a cleric of good. I can see that. You know, and she, gets, she gets, as she's sitting there staring and talking to Artemis, her eyes keep flipping up, and everybody in the party knows that she's looking at Darsh because Darsh is a scary dude, right? Imagine you were going to bed one night and you woke up and there's a Minotaur standing over your bed. You know, a Minotaur and three pretty ladies. It's the Minotaur that's the one that's going to get your attention, not the three pretty, well, depending where who you are, but you know what I'm saying. There's a minotaur standing above your bed. That's not normal. Darsh uh, commonly makes comments he's like, I'm going to make sure the horses are okay. And Mercy's like, okay, good idea. He starts squeezing his way back up sideways up that tunnel. They leave the torch there because obviously the young woman needs light to see. She doesn't have a reason. She's clearly human. Mercy again introduced all three of them. Said, that was our friend Darsh. Promise you, he's a good man, good friend. That's so what he left. He didn't want you to be freaked out any more than you already were. And they begin to kind of explain what's going on, and they give her the book. <laughs> and they, you know, start to just, dis- you know, well, the girl reads through it real quick. You can see the girl get tears welling up, and she, so she sees what her father and so on and so forth. And she's, you know, obviously upset. Her father's dead, right? That's what she just learned. You go to sleep, he's alive. You wake up, he's dead. Nobody wants that. And then they have to begin to explain who they are and they have to explain what the merge is and they have to explain that she's been sleeping here for they don't know how long but at least probably a hundred years if not maybe several hundred they can't tell and all of it seems like too much for her almost she's like you you know for better for better uh better example i guess i could say uh, Imagine the part of the, the first Matrix movie where Neo finds out that human beings are batteries. like, I can't take it, I can't take it. And he throws up. It's, kind of, it's like all this stuff is being thrown at you at once. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. My world is gone. Everyone I knew is dead. My father's dead. It's been 200 years I've been napping underground. And most of my world isn't there. I'm on a whole other plane of existence. Gods, Omniana, this, that. I mean, like that's a lot of stuff to just get hurled at you in one shot. And they try to go slow. If it wasn't for Artemis there, kind of holding her hand kind of thing, she'd probably freak out a little more. But Artemis has that calming effect. You know, being clear healing. She's got that bedside manner. She's been doing it a long time. Um, and an elf, again, historically a good person. Not always. Historically. She finally comes down catches her breath. She's, she's like, I, I'd like to leave this room if we can. And she's like, they're like, oh yeah, yeah it's, it's stinky down here. It's kind of musty. Let's go. So they all make their way up there and get outside. She starts looking around, and she's just checking things, and she, you know... You imagine, again, I keep using this example. Imagine you go to bed, wake up, and your whole house is 200 years older. Right? Imagine that, right? You close your eyes, and you you open them again. Your desk is old and warped and busted, you know? The flowers you just planted yesterday, it was just a pot on the ground. The not even dirt in it anymore. It's all ran away from the rain. The windows are broken from storms and stuff. S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't stop that. So this place is just a wreck. Compared to how it was yesterday, in her opinion. So they... She comes in and she sits down and they kind of give her some time. They, they, they open up the chest of holding. They go down and get some food and something to drink for because she's very hungry. She hasn't eaten in a century or more. Um, and it's the opening of the chest of holding... That kind of comes with the most because immediately she gets that whole, what is that chest of holding. Who created that? What kind of a spell was that? And just immediately they're like, ah, she's a mage too. She immediately starts hitting. It's like, oh, something new magical. It takes her mind off the troubles around her. Like, where did you get that? How do you know who created it? Are there more? Blah 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 blah. blah. And when asked, she's like, yes. She goes, I'm I, my. I was my father's apprentice. I have been for years. Although, I felt I was at the point where I could have. Moved out on my own. He wanted me here. I really thought he was lonely, so I stayed with him a little longer than I should have. My father was teaching me, although I didn't have the same call to building magic machines. He did. He's she's more of, a, say, a generic wizard. And I say that as in she hasn't found her pa- her calling yet. Mages usually choose a line, something that pulls them. Tobias was a magic item person, as was uh, Lemia, so on and so forth. Uh, There's the battle mages, which clearly that's their calling. But sometimes, just like someone going to college, you take all your general courses until you figure out what you want your major to be. And that's how she was. She hadn't really found that one thing that that really pulled her in that specific direction. But she was never quite as interested in the... She understood some of it, obviously. Growing up in that household, he would train her and teach her using that stuff, but it just wasn't her pull. They they then start asking about the big giant harvester. And she's like, yeah, I know it. I mean, I was there my father cast a spell to create it. Um, you know, I helped him in the forge when he was building it. Helped consecrate metals and, you know, casting spells and such to do that. Um, and again, she does confirm that upstairs, while he wasn't making magical rings and amulets and stuff, that's where he made the small very detailed mechanical pieces that would have to go sometimes inside the the eyes or the head of whatever or the heart of whatever machine they were building out there because there's always something he has to cast the spell on to make everything else work. And that was much more detailed stuff. The big plates for arms and legs would get hammered in the outside one kind of thing. She's upset that she was asleep this whole time and she wasn't there to help her father, but her father had told her that he would just he, he was he was just gonna put her to sleep for a short time while he left uh, until he was able to come back. This is before he went out to join up with the others to try to take the thing down. Uh, He was afraid that she might attract the thing as he attracted it. Didn't want it to be attracted to her uh, and maybe harm her in some way. So I guess his intention was to come back. Then he came back injured. Still couldn't... He was trapped in there probably running out of food. Getting sicker. There's nothing she could do about it. Just making her up would have let her be stuck in the same situation, trapped inside, wasting away with no food. So he made that bigger decision to leave her there until hopefully one day somebody found her and could save her. Um, I guess I should tell you her name. Wow, I just realized I've talked about her for 15 minutes and I haven't told you her name. Her name is Fia. Uh, Now, Fia, for the record, is spelled F-I-A-D-E. Now, if you're wondering how in the world I came up with Fia out of that uh, that is an old Gaelic name. It's a Scottish name. And that's the traditional spelling of it. Uh, and I liked it a lot. I've been hanging on to that one for a while. So I could use it on somebody I like. Uh, her name is Fia. Pronounced fee a But it's actually spelled F-I-A-D-E. Fia. I should have a mini for her. Painted and available on the website. By the time this goes up on iTunes and Spotify. I would started designing it. But I haven't got it done yet. Um, obviously she's going to be here for a few minutes. or I wouldn't have told you that, right? So they're sitting there and they're discussing, you know, what's going on. She does say that she is 22 years old. She is a human mage named Fia. Um, Let's see. She definitely doesn't want to stay here. Right now, you and your spellings. I... (laughs) Miss Ashley is giving me hell for, for my spellings. For the record... I didn't pick this. This is the classic Gaelic spelling of how it's pronounced. Just like I've mentioned before, uh, the goddess Circe is S-A-O-I-R-S-E, which again is an Irish spelling of Saoirse. Um A lot of times I make up the words myself, uh, names of cities and names of people, just things that sound kind of cool, and a lot of times I snag them from the real world. Sometimes they're real names of historical people, sometimes, I mean, there's... There's been characters named Michael. Obviously, that's a regular-sounding name. Uh, He was named basically after my best friend growing up, Michael. Um, So there's that kind of thing. Rafe and Nilat were clearly words we came up with. Um, But another common thing that I do is, again, some of you don't know. I don't know who I ever mentioned here. My other job is I work at a call center for a national cell phone company. And so all day long, I get phone calls from people that have interesting names. And you'd be surprised how often a weird last name becomes a cool first name in a fantasy setting. So I have a notepad, and as I, I get a call from someone I'm like, oh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Ooh, I can change that into a city. That would sound like a city to me. So that's where I get a lot of my names from, um, will be from the names of people or the cities that they live in. When their account pulls up, I'm like, oh, this person's name sounds cool. Oh, what a cool name of a town. I can use that. So a little uh, glimpse behind the curtain there for you. But yeah, my spelling in this one... I, I wanted to have a name for. Her. And she probably has a bit of a Gaelic accent, but I'm not gonna do it because I'm not gonna insult nobody, but she has a bit of a Gaelic accent to her. When are you naming a character at your best friend? <laughs> Ashley? Hmm. We'll have to talk about that. I guess we'll see. <laughs> I don't even have a heather yet. <laughs> That's my wife. i my wife would be like, wait a minute. <laughs> There are some characters and NPCs out there who are named after people I know. There's one in particular I'm really excited to that I created a long time ago and has been part of the story and been in the adventure, the story I've told you several times, and you have no idea who she is. I'm excited about that. Maybe you'll find out one day. But, get back to the story. I don't want to hint or make you guys worry about things in the future. So... Basically, they're going to have to find a way. This thing has been walking around for a couple hundred years, not letting anything in the area live. Um, obviously, the big axe hand is what chopped in that first roof they saw, um, things of that nature. But they didn't see any huge, over-crazy fields. They still seemed relatively wild but tended, so it's possible that the thing's still reverting to some of its basic instincts To when it doesn't have something to be a threat is to farm. So they start asking Fia about it. They're like, okay, what do you know about this thing? They're like, oh, it kills everybody. We'll never get out of here kind of thing. They're like, listen, we're a little more capable than the farmers you hung out with. Not insulting anybody. We've got some, and they're like, look, that's a magic sword. That's a magic hoop pack. I got a magic whip over here. And she's like, and she does get kind of like, wow, you guys carry a lot of magical stuff. Some of this stuff is pretty powerful. And they tell her who she, they are. Well, listen, I'm the Queen of Serenity. She's the head cleric of a temple. He owns an entire you know, fleet down there. And the little girl, she hunts undead. We, we know what we're doing. But that thing we don't understand. What do you know about it? Do you know anything at all that we could use that might help us to, to, you know, take it down or at least eliminate it enough for us to get away? But in this situation, as much as they would like to get away... Mercy, all of them a little bit, but mercy specifically, mercy, has that whole, but I can't just leave it here to threaten other people who show up. You know, I just can't leave it here for the next innocent person to walk through, you know. I'd like to try to take the threat away. Sophia explains what she knows, talking about it, so on and so forth. And she goes, yes, the thing has a weak spot, though it's impossible to get to it. I' like well, let us know let's see what we can do and she says well there's a there's a compartment on the back of its neck and if it's opened inside is a stone much like the one you use to awaken me it's the, the keystones are a big part of how the magic works um, but there's a keystone in there and if the keystone was to be removed which in itself would be a challenge if it could get removed it, it, the, whole, the whole spell would be disrupted and they're Like okay, so he's got to get there and open that up. She goes, "You're not. You can't open it from up there." Because there's a second compartment that has the actual switch, you could say, that does that, and it's actually on the inner thigh of, on the, of one of its legs. Not an easy place to get a hole get to. It wasn't designed that way to be hard. When it was just standing there, not moving, you just walk up, open the door, do what you need to do. But it's locked, and her father locked it, and she goes, "I have no key to open that." Um, it's not magically locked, but it's you know it's in there closed. The only he knows really how to open that kind of thing. You'd have to do... It's it's made sturdy. You'd have to do some serious damage to that section to try to break that part open. But if you could, it would unlock the part where the neck is, and then, then you have a chance of getting the, the, the keystone out. Um, <laughs> Random guy, I appreciate that. I do play it. I do, and I come back to it. Um, just taking a little bit of a break playing a Sky Farm right now. Uh, but if you'd like to see... I am, I am streaming Sunday nights. Um, Minecraft still here on the channel. So definitely swing by if you get a chance. Um, yeah, sorry. Just addressing the question. Um, so they're like, okay. So let's follow this straight. We have to get the magic stone out of the back of its neck. But we can't open that until we bust open the door on the inside of its leg. And she's like, yeah, basically. And she goes, but that's going to take a lot of damage, and you have to survive while doing that. And on top of all that, then you've got to find a way to get up on its neck. And it's not just going to you know, offer you a hand up. So they get to the plan it, and they're like, okay, let's see what we can do here. Do a lot of damage to a specific part. Darsha and Mercy are like, we can do that. We know how that works. Do damage to a specific point on an, on an enemy. We've had to deal with this type of thing before. Hit an eye on this thing. Shoot it in the mouth over here. This is something we understand. Lots of damage to the inside of the leg. Do you know which leg? She goes, it's left leg. She goes, okay, cool. We know where. You can point out where. The height, so on and so forth. We have to do damage to that. That and staying alive, hard stuff. But doable, maybe. The next step is how do we go ahead and get somebody up there? Well, the only one of the five of them, counting Fia, who could climb up there would potentially be Dandy. Dandy has very good climbing skills, but climbing up something that big while it's moving and fighting hard. So they get to talk about, okay, well, what other options have we got then? I'm like, well... And Dandy goes, what if I was already up there? I'm like, what do you mean? We don't have a flying carpet anymore. Underneath the water, that thing ate it. She's like, yeah, I know that, but this tower's the same, almost a little bit taller than that thing. If it got close enough, couldn't I jump off the roof on top of the thing? Thinking, well, yeah, but that would mean it would have to come through the shield. And Danny's like, Fia, do you know how to turn the shield off? Fia's like, I do, yeah, but I don't have a way of turning it back on again. That's something my father had to cast that spell. I know how to turn it off. I mean, again, simply, there's a keystone. You know, up in the, you know, we, we remove the keystone, the spell stops. I mean, that's that's doable, but then you have to put it in and cast the spell, and she goes, that spell's not a spell I, I've ever learned. And I'm like, okay, well, if we turn that off and this doesn't work, we're gonna have no place to go. We've got to make this happen. And I'm like, okay. So this is what the plan, as it came up. So like, what they're gonna do first, is they're not gonna drop the shield. They're going to leave Dandy up on top of the tower. Artemis and Fia will stay inside the shield where they can cast spells to help. Darsh and Mercy will step outside of the shield trying to do the damage that they need. It, when it gets to the point that it's going to be successful, Fia will need to either show Dandy or whoever who, how to pull it out. And she said, I can show Dandy, he'll be up there anyways because Danny'll have to pull the keystone out, then climb out the window onto the roof, then they'll have to kite it closer so she can jump on top of the thing. And then try to hopefully at that point they've got the neck open and she can get in there and, and pry out the keystone. And it's stressed, it won't be just pop right out. It's it's locked in there for you have to like pry pieces of metal off, kind of like um like imagine a diamond in a diamond ring. It's got the little metal bars that kind of hold it in place, right? That go around it. You're going to have to pull some of these back to get it out. Those are held in there pretty tight. The keystone's not that big. Um, you could do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's made of fine metals in there. It has to be, to be connected to the keystone. So she, I think she says, like, made of gold or something like that. So, so I mean, you'll be able to bend it, but it won't be easy, and you'll be doing it while it's moving, and they're attacking its legs. They did briefly discuss this. It's going to be, would it would be easier to try to knock it over, but just looking at the size and stuff of it, even Dars charging probably couldn't do that. If they didn't have damage to one leg, it might fall over, but they're not sure. If it falls on its back, then there's no way they're going to get to the neck, and then like, what problems have they got there? Or it could squish them. So they decide to go with their plan A. Now they decide to get a good night's rest. Fia, who's wide awake, they stress, hey, if you're going to help out. You probably haven't practiced your spells in a couple hundred years. You might want to get your spell book out. Um, Her specific items were: she had a there was a small box or something down a chest down in the where she was resting, and inside her was her spell book and a couple of her basic materials, even in there. Even with the boost boots, yes, because imagine that. That's a good question actually. The boost boots give him a boost of speed, but it doesn't make him stronger per se. It gives him a running start and it helps with that momentum. But he's going to hit this thing barely at the knee, right? Maybe if he could get behind it and hit it in the back of the knee, maybe. But then there's that trouble where it's going to fall backwards. But the legs on this thing are bigger around than a a full kitchen table, kind of. It's a huge leg. So running into that one leg and he does knock it over... I mean, it could crumple down right on top of it. Or, if it falls forward, could squish everybody else. So it falling and not being able to control where that fall is, even if they could pull that off, would be a lot harder. You know, if they and they don't say this in so many words to, in front of Fia, but, you know, like we had some of our battle mages with the big lightning bolts and shock in the hell, we could probably blow a leg right off, but we didn't bring one, right? Um, and I have to apologize because there's an extra person here that I keep forgetting to mention, right? Like, we've all talked about him... And I've already... I've already... I I've, I forgot to mention he's here a hundred times... But I mentioned it last stream, that's Percy. Right? Artemis had to bring Percy with him. I keep forgetting to mention Percy... And I apologize for that. That's on me. I knew he was here... His name's in front of my face five times... And I keep forgetting to mention that Percy's there. Percy went with them. I apologize. I always feel bad about those type of things... When it's an important plot point... That everybody understands... Everybody knows like when Michael, Michael uh, who I mentioned earlier here uh, was watching with us today, snagged me where I messed up. Um, in the earlier episode when Maeve had her vision and then the paladin came to Artemis' room and saying, when she asks for me, send her to me. I was calling him Quentin. When it's not Quentin, the paladin's name is Weston. In the next episode, I went right back into Weston. I don't know why I started calling him Quentin. <laughs> but I didn't realize it till he called. I went back and listened to it and I'm like, hot damn. That's true. I did miss that. I was like, um, hopefully not everybody else catches that. Yes, poor Percy is what the MT says. And I'll have you know that while we played Merge World, this is me stepping out of it, going back to the early stuff. If you'll remember, I introduced Tobias originally so that they had a mage, Right. They needed a mage. They didn't have a, ma- a mage. And Artemis was nowhere near her level. Her spell casting was not that hot back when they were really starting this stuff with phase two after the others died. And I can't tell you how many times I've mixed up Tobias and Tevin's name in the early days. They're both T-words, and they're both relatively squishy. And so Tobias and Tevin got mixed up all the time, and I also can't tell you how many times they'd go on an adventure, and we'd be halfway through the fight before I'd remember Lucas was there. Because Anywhere Artemis went, Lucas went too. Uh, Once she met Lucas, the only time that she didn't have him with her is when Draven kidnapped her and when they went to fight Nilot and she had to stay there and protect the original chapel. He stayed there with Misha. So, I used to forget Lucas all the time until halfway through a fight, I'm like, oh, let Lucas help. And they're like, yeah, we could use the help. (laughs) So, allow me to say that it will be Darsh, Mercy, and Percy who are going to be outside of the shield attacking. Back up there before I mess all that up. Percy just stands in the back and does what... He, he's, a, he's a good warrior, right? But he doesn't have the experience these guys do when it comes to this worldwide stuff. So he kind of follows Artemis's orders unless her orders would get her hurt, and then he ignores those and does what he's supposed to do, which is keep her alive. Which, against her orders, but are Ian's order, who's in charge of him, and he's very conflicting, very conflicting. So he's like, I will always do... What you tell me to do, until you tell me something stupid. It's kind of Percy's motto in life. I will do what Artemis tells me until she tells me something stupid. Then I will do the better thing and hope that I was right. But Percy is going to help too. Yay, Percy! <laughs> my God, I can't believe it. His name's four times. I looked on my page here. <sighs> so they spend the night. Um, everybody takes a turn. Sleeping or keeping watch, except for uh, Fia, because I mean she's never been part of that group. It's not that they don't trust her; it's that they don't trust anybody. You know, until they, for all they know, they're, at this point she seems purely the victim here. But they're not idiots. There's always that looking out of the corner of their eyes, right? They've been betrayed before. You know, they're not new at this. So right now they're like, okay, she just told us how to take down this thing. Cool. this works, awesome. But in the back of their head. You know what I mean? You always have to wonder. Was that shield to keep her in? Was that thing meant to make sure she didn't? Cuz that's the type of thing that people would expect from me. Because I do that stuff. <laughs> you know, I was like, the whole time it was there to protect they're defeating the dis- that's not the situation this time. This thing slaughtered all the farmers. <laughs> but I did consider that when I was writing this, <laughs> but no. <laughs> so clear that up in case everybody thinks that's the hidden plot line. It's not it. Not saying there isn't a hidden plot line. I've always got a couple of those. So they rest to get to sleep. She gets her spell book out, and of course, on the off chance that they have to run, they get their horses prepped, ready to go. Right? Um, she's gonna ride with with Dandy. She says she knows the basics of riding a horse, but she's not like an expert. Dandy is much more experienced, so she'll ride with Dandy, who's the smallest. And Thea is probably about 5'8". She's actually taller than Artemis, Mercy, or Dandy, by a couple of inches. I want to say they're 5'4", 5'5", and Dandy's not even 4 feet. But, you know, she's actually a bit taller than them, but she's shorter than Darsh and Percy, Everybody's shorter than Darsh, but she's even shorter than Percy, who's like 6'1". So, um, she'll ride on the back with Dandy, basically holding on for dear life, while Dandy tries to race them out of there. And they have a whole plan set up again. If something happens where this doesn't work, the goal is that Darsh and Mercy will try to lead the thing off, while Percy tries to get Artemis, Dandy, and Fia out of there. And then they'll try to regroup with them back in the northwest, continue on the direction that they're going. On the way back, they'll have to find another way around kind of thing if, if, if they can't take this down. So they've got some contingency plans. They, they make sure they know what they're doing. Next morning, they get up. There's no sign of the creature still. They, they've been checking all night long. It's a slightly foggy morning. Just a slight mist, but nothing real bad. They wait a while for most of that to clear out before they decide to make their moves. And then they do what all heroes do in a situation like this. they walk outside the shield and then make loud noises because you you, you got to track the thing right that's how it works So Dandy's up in the tower she's watching out the window they're making a they're making a point of fighting it in that direction so she can see there's only one window at the top she only see the one direction okay when they give the sign or the signal she then she's going to pull that keystone out she sees where it is they showed her. They told you just drop the keystone. You don't have to bring it with you. Just pull it out. That's all it has to happen. It's dandy, so there's a good chance it'll end up in a pouch. But, you know, pull the keystone out. And then when you do that, uh, climb up on the roof and get ready to try to jump on this thing. So they get out there. They wait until everything's clear. And they get out there, and they literally start making noises. They start on their shields, both Percy and Mercy and Darsh. Percy and Mercy. Percy and Mercy and Darsh. It goes well together. They all have shields and weapons. They're that's their users, right? That's how they roll. They start wailing on their shields, screaming and such and it takes a little bit of time, but then sure enough in the distance they start to hear that creaking and clanging and they can hear it just a second before they see it. But it's big, so it's very faint, yet they can still see it while the sound is faint. So everybody gets prepped, ready to go, and they're uh, they're all standing outside the field while Artemis and Fia are standing inside. Now, Percy's in a situation where should things start to be falling apart, his job is to fall back, get Artemis and the and the rest of them out of there. So he's going to be helping. They need any help they can do to do that damage to that door on the inside of the leg. Right? And I'm sure that's not the only place they're going to be attacking it. Um, Percy does not have a lot of magic items. He does have a sword plus two. It was a gift from Lucas, specifically after um, he saved the children. You remember that adventure where you know he stood there and the sword was sticking out of him, and he still wouldn't fall down. That was a, a, basically something that was given to him in a little ceremony for the for what he did. Um, so he has a, a pretty decent sword and. He, all Templars have a shield plus one. It's something that Artemis puts a decent amount of money into. And he's got really good armor. But he's not wearing the best Templar armor that they have. Because they're kind of, also remember, a little undercover here. You know, Mercy's not wearing any of their Serenity gear. Darcy isn't flying his banner. Danny doesn't really have one. I think she did, but I don't remember what it looks like. So he doesn't have on the best armor that a Templar would have. But he has on kind of a generic Templar that any Templar could be wearing. And the beast cometh. So they go out there and they start ready to go. And the thing's moving forward at quite a bit of speed. Um, obviously, they could just turn around and run ten feet and be back inside the shield again. But the thing doesn't seem to care. It's coming right at them. And they ask Fia, like, is this thing smart? Like, its strategy, that kind of stuff. And she says, I don't, I don't believe so. My father didn't think so. My father thought it was working more on what instinct and programming it had. Again, I use the word programming very loosely. You have to, you know, let's say it's all about it's doing what it knows. It still considers anybody humanoid as a threat. So if you're a humanoid, it's going to try and kill you. Um, but it's going to try to get you, even if you're one foot away from the shield. Until you step inside and it can't get to you, it knows that now. It doesn't. He goes, I, you know, I, I didn't bang on the shield last night, so it's learned it can't get through it. But even if you're a foot outside, it's going to make every attempt it can. And sure enough, that thing is a steamin' along. I say that because there is some steam coming out of it. It's a side effect of mechanical parts. <laughs> and battle begins. So in a battle like this, Artemis is basically throwing healing spells, right? That's that's her main goal here. If there's a round where somebody doesn't need healed, she's going to cast things like a bless spell to try to boost everyone's abilities like she always does. That's kind of her thing. Fia. Um, is an okay mage. She's about sixth level, so she's got a lightning bolt, you know, and she has magic missiles and a few things of that nature, and she has a wand of magic missiles just like Artemis does. It's one of the things that she had in her little pack of gear, that was you know kind of put down there with her, that her father kind of left for kind of thing. But she can't start whipping out lightning bolts at a metal thing when they're when her new friends are standing you know a foot away from it. So, lightning bounces. <laughs> so. Uh, She's not really to out, but she's got magic missiles and a few things that she can do to help out as well. Um, and of all of them, her magic missiles, while they don't do a ton of damage, they always hit their target. And I've said this before, but I want to stress it. The magic missile spell, if the mage can see it, the magic missile will hit it. It's like a heat-seeking kind of missile kind of thing. It will always hit that unless something specifically moves to intercept it or the thing can't be struck because of like a shield or something. So her little magic missiles are guaranteed shots on that spot. Not a lot of damage, but it could help build up. Artemis has hers as well. She has a free round to pop one off. She also has her lions that she can throw down, which I don't talk about a lot, but she actually uses them quite often. Um, But whether or not they could keep up with the horses, the lions aren't really going to help against the metal things, so she's not going to bring her lions out at this point. You remember she named her lions Pen and Teller? We're all fans. (laughs) <laughs> Battle ensues. So Darsh, of course, main tanking this one. He's right up front, doing what he can. This fight is a little bit unorthodox compared to a lot of the D&D fights, because D&D fights, is parrying and dodging, but with this thing, it's all dodging and trying to get a hit in. This is a giant axe swathing through the air with a big enough strike that, if you're close enough, he gets hit everybody. The other side is a big scythe. That's an even wider swing on that thing. The thing does have to bend over to hit them. It is tall. It was designed to bend over and cut crops and trees down and such. So it can do that. And now that they're seeing it in the sunlight for the first time, they can see small parts of rust and wear on it. Um, It is starting to break down a little bit. Another couple hundred years, it might fall apart itself. But they don't got that kind of time. Artemis has that time, but nobody else does. So... Blah, blah, blah. Battle ensues. They know exactly what they're looking for, and as soon as they start fighting it, they can see the door. I mean, it's clearly, okay, that's the spot we have to hit. It's a slightly different color metal. That's what we have to go for. It's getting in close enough to do that. And it's going to take a couple rounds of combat for them to realize that, because it's a lot of dodging at first. Seeing how the thing moves and how it attacks. With the knowledge, if they have to, they can fall back inside of the shield. They're aware of that, but they're going to try not to do that they don't want to give that you know, kind of thoughts and draw attention to their friends behind them if they can help it. Dandy's very frustrated because she's on the top of the tower. She can't even do anything from where she is. She tosses a sling bullet at this thing. It's just going to bounce off its shell. It's not really going to do any damage. She sure as heck can't hit the leg part that needs hit from way up here. But she also knows that her part's going to be one of the most important because she's going to have the hard job of not only prying something out. She has to get on there and get to it. The thing is very broad of shoulders, and she's already watching how it moves. It's like, here's where I could grab onto that. And she also can see a little bit of the rust and where it's like, excellent. I uh, have to be careful. I don't want to fall through a rust hole and end up inside this thing, but that might give me some options to climb if there's some holes and such. That may help. So she's up there just kind of watching what she needs to do. The battle goes on. After a few rounds, they, uh, who has the amulet? The amulet that, that opens up... The, that removes the force field? Now that's not an amulet. That's a keystone up in the top of the tower. That's what Dandy has to pull out... To open up the shield. So in the, up in the tower, there's a keystone... That's, that's inside like uh, the wall. There's like, a, uh, like a, a circle of stones. And this one's plugged in there... And that's what protects the whole tower. So once they've got the leg part busted... Where they think the neck's open... They're going to wave to Dandy. Dandy's going to pull that keystone out and then climb out that window onto the roof because then the shield's open and everybody's going to back up and try to get it close to the tower so Dandy can jump off the tower on the thing's shoulder on its back. So the amulet that was his that woke her up, that's the only thing that it did. So that amulet was basically not important anymore because she doesn't know how to use it to cast the spell anyways. Maybe I'm sure they have it. Maybe it's in a bag. His, some of his spell books are still there. She gathered up what she could of her, you know, the spell components and such, and, and get, they let her put some of the stuff in the chest of holding. So they took everything out of the house that she might be able to use or of value. She doesn't have any money, so she's got to make it. You know, we get out of here, I don't know what I'm going to do. They're already thinking, like, well, she's capable, and she doesn't try to kill us. I want to use another battle mage. She hasn't got a calling yet. we bring her back home, whatever the case may be. Or help her get to a place where she wants to you know, start a new life. Who knows, right? Yes. So, but the amulet itself, that's probably just in a pouch. The one that her father was wearing only protected the spell that put her asleep. Good question, though. Thank you. So, battle goes on. Right off the bat, they learn it's taking turns poking the bear. You know what I mean? Mercy jumps in, bangs it in the leg, the thing swings for her. While that's going on, Percy has a chance to jump in and attack that spot on the leg. Then he backs up. Darsh comes in, Pokes the bear, hits it in the stomach, or, you know, crotch or whatever he can reach. He's the tallest. He might be able to hit you know, a little bit higher. Thing swings with Darce with one of his weapons. Mercy or Percy, whoever has the chance. Okay, I've got the opening. I jump in. I do that attack on the leg. So it's, it's very moving in and out where two rounds you're dodging, the next one you're attacking. And they're trying to keep it mixed up so that the thing doesn't realize any type of a pattern. Right? So sometimes they'll switch places. darcy will go to the left. Mercy will switch with him. And Mercy will switch with Percy. He's in the middle. They, they do try to keep Percy a little bit more back because he is squishier than them. But the man's capable. They wouldn't have allowed him to come if he was going to be dragging them behind. Percy has a little bit of hard-headedness when it comes to protecting Artemis. More so than Ian does. He's a little more like Lucas that way. Um... But he genuinely has faith that Artemis is going to do the right thing, so it's rare he has to really ignore her orders. I was joking about that earlier, but he will. He just rarely has to. But the man's capable. You can shove a sword through him, and he's not going to fall over. He's already proven that. If he's got to protect something, he's going to do it until you kill him. And uh, you know, his desire to protect over everything else is one thing that really brought his attention to Ian and Lucas. Ian being the guy who took over in charge of the Templars when Lucas retired. In case anybody forgot. Okay, get back on that. So it takes a little while for that damage to happen. Playing D&D, it probably takes about 10 to 12 rounds of seriously hitting, because they're not having a hard time hitting it. It's doing damage to it. Um, Percy and Darsh are shield, or sword users. Swords stabbing against this metal legs or even slashing against it, isn't doing as much. Mercy's hits, on the other hand, are doing much, much more damage. Because that's, again, just a big spike ball hitting this door. As it's denting in, they punch it in. The edges are going to start poking out. It means loosening on hinges. And that's what they're looking for. Um, Darsh doesn't have any blunt weapons. He has a battle axe, which sometimes he switches to. But it's a two-handed battle axe. He doesn't use a one-handed. It's always on his back. Which means he's got to drop his shield. Right now, he's not trying to do that. Percy has a sword. He's a sword user. He also has some daggers, but that's not going to help him. That's all he's got. So they're going at this thing, and Mercy's doing the lion's share of the damage in this situation. So, and she gets one good hit on it, and they see that it starts to buckle. They hear a pop, and they hear it buckle. And as the thing's moving, because it's walking around too, it's just not standing still. A couple times it tries to step on them. There's a squish attack it tries to do a couple of times. They've got to all try to roll out of the way. You know, from a imagine from a video game, every five rounds a stomp attack tries to squish a random one and everybody has to roll out of the way to try not that let that happen, then get back up and start over again. But that's punching through, right? That's how it's going. When they see it buckle a bit, and they can't tell if it's loose, but it's definitely taking damage. A couple more hits like that could be all that it needs. When about that time Mercy slips. Could happen to anybody. wasn't anything she did wrong. She just slips in the wet grass. She's doing her best. She, they're moving. They're dodging. She slips and literally just falls on the ground. The creature, the giant thing, the harvester—we're gonna call it—of sorrow. Dun, 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 dun. Sorry. <laughs> Sees this, and immediately brings down, you know, it's, it's, okay, there's an easy one, and comes down with the axe hand. For the record, the scythe hand is the left hand. The axe hand is the right hand. Just in case you're wondering. It wasn't meant to pick up trees. It was meant to cut down and chop. You pick up the tree. I just knock it down. And it's coming down with that axe on Mercy. Now, Mercy's very likely going to be able to try and roll out of the way. Darsh sees this, though. And Darsh is a hero. Darsh who hasn't had reason to do this yet, decides he has to get the creature's attention. And he needs to do better than he's been doing to help out. So he decides to trigger his boots... and rush right in on the leg of the thing. Not so much to knock it over, like we discussed earlier... but to let him try to get a really big hit on that... and to draw the thing's attention. Because whoever gets closer, it draws attention... I will say, it's smart enough to defend itself when it can. So, you know, Mercy is the one that hits it. It goes after Mercy, but it's just not leaving itself completely wide open. To try to, you know, he's getting ready to come down on Mercy. Darsh uses his charge boots and literally lets go of his sword. Because his sword, just not doing the damage he needs it to. So Darsh decides to use something more blunt. Darsh decides to punch it. Now, Darsh, like everybody else here, has armor on. He's got some gauntlets on, so it's not bare knuckles. But they're not like super plate mail. They're, they're more of a, like a I don't know, tough leather at this point. But Darsh is pretty strong. We know that. And so Darsh boosts in and just brings his hand into that thing as hard as he possibly can. He uses full strength on that. And as he does, he feels the metal buckle. Like he can feel it almost wrapping on his hand. And as he pulls his hand out, he can feel the thing come loose, and it literally flops off. Success. But while he was doing that, it drew the attention of the Harvester. And as it did, it changes its attack, and using the scythe comes at Darsh, who's now not in the middle of moving. Darsh sees it coming and moves kind of out of the way as best he can. But still, he feels that scythe cut in deep. And Darsh is lifted off the ground. The scythe itself didn't hit him full blade on, but it was enough to cut deep and hit him so hard that Darsh literally is tossed into the air. Thrown off to the side a good 15 to 20 yards. This thing's big and strong. And Darsh is heavy. But Darsh just goes in the air, and as he does... Mercy and Percy both can feel blood splatter on both of them. Uh, yes, the amulet from the dead mage—that's the one I was referencing. That's the one that was that they had to use to open up the spell that was protecting the daughter. That was keeping her asleep. They put that keystone on the bottom of her sarcophagus, and that made it disappear, so she woke up. That's what that amulet was for. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it's in one of their... I'm sure the daughter has it in her bag. Fia, Fia has it on, in her backpack or whatever she's got wearing. Belt pouch or something like that. It was her father's. I'm sure she'd want it. Darsh is flung into the air and he goes far. Everybody's like... Moment of shock. They don't have long to wait because the thing immediately spins and begins... Or spins back and begins attacking. Except Mercy had time to get on her feet but now it's just Mercy and Percy. And... Darsh is not getting up. They're in a bit of a quandary. They have to get in there and do damage. to. Now that the door's done, it's open, They has got to do some damage to the inside of that. One or two good hits should do it. Even Percy's Swords will help here. One or two hits inside might be what they need to get the back of the neck open. But Darsh is way over there and he's bleeding. They know this. they got blood all over surprisingly, it's Percy that calls out to Artemis. Uh, Baby attracted to the amulet. Oh! I see where you're going with that. Attracted to the amulet. You know, I never thought of that. That actually would have been a really cool concept to use. Very cool. I can tell you this because it doesn't affect the story. For me, the concept of the amulets was this. There were originally four mages who lived in this tower. That's what the four sarcophagi hidden underneath were. They weren't evil. They were good mages. They weren't robo-mages, like this guy, but they were mages, and they are probably his ancestors or so on and so forth. All four of them had an amulet, and each each amulet was one of the four keystones. These keystones all did something different in the tower, that they cast the spells upon it, and the keystones were passed down, but as the keystones were passed down, the spells that created them and how to fully use them, more of that got lost. Everybody just knew the command word to make it do the thing it needed. So one would allow them to sleep for however long they need. Had they known the true power of the spell, they could have. Both the father and daughter could have went in there and used it. Say five years, wake up five years, perfectly fine. It would have, like an alarm would have let them out. The father didn't know how to do that. One has the shield, right? So there are four keystones that, when all placed in the bottom sarcophagi, that's when the thing would actually have an orb would appear. That would do some cool stuff. This in the back of my mind is stuff that has nothing to do with the story. Characters would never know this. It's not going to come out. But it's something that if I was to write this into an adventure people could play, where slightly different, how do they defeat it? They would have to gather the four to get access to the ball. I, 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 I try to have that stuff in the back of my head when I create adventures. What what if they said, are there more, and I wanted to put these four together Do they do anything? I want to have something for them to do. But it never dawned on me that the, the keystone itself would be something that attracts it. Definitely one of the keystones is in the back of the thing's neck. They already said that. He used it to help bring the thing to life, even though he didn't quite know what, they don't know quite all of what the keystones do. But that would have been a very cool concept. I like that. Sadly, I didn't think of that. <laughs> so they're in a pitch, but it's Percy that yells out to Artemis to go help Darsh. Artemis doesn't hesitate. As soon as she, she's like, to a stage, stay? I, I mean, she's hesitating at first. And Percy's like, go! Get him! Because Artemis has to leave the shield to do that. And as soon as he yells that, he just starts charging in and thwack a thwack thwack on legs and such, trying to draw the main attention of the thing. Percy is at this point saying, okay, you know what? There's a chance one of us is going to die. I guess it's going to be me. I'm going to go in here and chop at this leg that's going to hopefully open it up for Mercy to attack do the damage we need, because her thing does better. Well, Artemis is saving Darsh, who can then get her the hell out of here. Because as much as he knows his job, he knows that Mercy or Darsh, and probably even Dandy, any one of them, is more capable of protecting Artemis than he is. If it came down to that. You know, if one person was alive to protect him, he would be the least important one. Really. Uh, And he'll always put her before himself. So he goes in and just starts power-attacking the thing, and tries to turn it. And that's what he's doing. He's attacking it and getting further from the shield. Now, the creature's on instinct, but it knows this thing's further away from protection. I can get this one. And so, sure enough, it turns towards him. And the attention, so he's not trying to do damage per se, he's trying to keep its attention. So he's dodging and just blah, 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 but with the sword and the shield. Blah, 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 blah. Mercy uses this opportunity to go in at the leg. And sure enough, she's able to run in and get a couple real big hits. And the last one hurts her. That's a good sign. She was was aware of that. Fia uh, Fia warned them. If, If you see any type of electric shocking kind of thing, that means you've done damage to the thing that's keeping it open. If there's a liquid in there, a vial, it's a pressure thing. When that's popped and the liquid comes out, there's normally a valve in there you could do. If you turn the valve with the key, fluid comes out, the thing pops open the neck. It's all pressure-based. So she does that. It shatters, but the liquid itself is very corrosive. It gets on her skin. It hurts her a bit. It's like... It's not like... It, the sting of, like, electricity almost, just in the splatter damage, but it's not actually electricity. It's that kind of... like magic juices, whatever. She does that. They can't hear if the neck opens. They don't know if the neck is open. They have to trust the neck is open. And Mercy yells, Fia, now, Fia. Fia starts waving at Danny, go, go. And Danny's like, got it, and jumps in, runs back to the other side of the room and pulls that keystone out. Comes out super easy. Pops it out. Seconds out, the shield comes down. Now Percy and Mercy together are trying to defend themselves against the tower. But the thing tell, can see that the shield has gone down. And it starts moving forward towards the tower. Attacking them, but it seems that the tower is even more of the target than they are. And the reason is, is because the wizard's still in there. It's dead, but it's still linked with it. It can sense that the body, whatever, it just knows it's in there. And it wants to, that's what it's trying to, that was the biggest threat to it, was the one thing that could Uncast the spell. Now, this thing may not even realize it's dead. It may have no idea of the concept of time. But it knows it's in there because it's never come out. I say it because it views the person as an it. It doesn't care. So it starts charging in, but at the same time, it's quite obvious that this thing wants to get to the tower. But also wants to kill them. Don't get me wrong. That's more important. You can always kill the tower later. Dandy quickly makes her way up top. She'd already put a grappling hook. She'd already climbed out there and tied a rope so she'd get up there faster now. She didn't want to try to freehand climb in in, in an instant. But she's on top, and she's maybe eight feet taller than what the actual Harvester is. The Harvester of Sorrow. I'm going to call it that from now on Harvester. As it's getting pulled in closer, she's waiting for her turn. Waiting for her chance. She gets it, but not in the way that she expected. The thing swings at Percy. Misses. The thing swings at Mercy. Misses. It reels back with that axe hand and chops the tower. Dandy has barely time to think before she starts to feel the roof underneath of her start to cave in as the top of the tower begins to collapse because the hand went two-thirds of the way in and then pulled it back out the tower, the top part of the tower is literally collapsing so as it's collapsing it's kind of falling towards the thing Dandy not missing her chance starts running across it, so you can imagine the thing's falling, but Dandy's still running across it, and as the thing is dropping, as it's going to get to a point where it's going to be too low, she jumps as hard as she can to the thing's shoulder and she manages to grab on, one dagger cuts right through the metal She has some very powerful daggers. We've talked about that. The one dagger goes right through. The other hand misses, and she's kind of hanging from the dagger, but it only takes her a second to get a grip on it. Sure enough, she can find all sorts of things. The thing's got welded joints on there. The thing's got metal flaps that she has to be careful. Don't pinch her fingers. There's a lot of stuff to hang on to on this thing. And so she starts, you know, she's right near the, kind of on the shoulder. She's kind of coming up to its neck. The creature doesn't really seem to know that she's there. It doesn't focus on her at all. It's not even trying. It's trying to kill them, and they realize it's trying to knock the tower on them at this point. That's what it was trying to do. It was trying to knock the tower on them. Didn't work, because the tower didn't fall quite the way they were looking, but the tower is now half missing. In fact, half of the bedroom floor is where it went in. Everything above it's collapsed. So the tower's got like a big half chunk out of it. There's a big rubble all across the ground, which cuts off one way of escape, Artemis and Darsh are on the other side of that rubble. Let's talk about them. While that's going on, Artemis makes it to Darsh. And for a brief moment, she thinks it's too late. He's laying there and there's a huge cut on one side of him. Part of his entrails are coming out. There's just blood everywhere, and he's just coughing blood. He's it looks like he's trying to move, but he's completely in shock. He's just he's not moving, and he's just there's a hole in him. She's never seen him quite this damaged before. But he's coughing. Which means he's breathing. That means Artemis has a shot. Artemis rushes in, gets down and starts immediately casting the most powerful heal spell that she has. It's an incredibly powerful heal spell. It will heal him back to full. It'll make him, you know, like that, he'll be refreshed. He'll feel like he just slept 8 hours. He'll feel awesome but it drains her to the point that it could make her fall unconscious. Probably will. There's a tiny chance that it will use up some of her life energy. she'd be one of the shorter-lived races, it could kill her. That's how strong a spell she's casting. To cast this is something she's never cast before. It's a very powerful heal spell. But she's not taking any chances. A, again... Against this thing, because she's not seeing the tower... She hears big slamming, but she doesn't have time to think about that. Darsh is, again, one of their strongest people. they got to have Darsh. So she gets in there, and she starts casting the spell. It takes just a moment... But the spell is successful... And she can see, literally watch his wounds healing in front of her... As she feels energy draining out of herself. But this spell is basically going to suck out... Almost the rest of all of her healing magic for the day. And as Darsh's eyes open hers clothes, and she falls to the ground beside him. Mercy is damn tired of this machine. She is tired. She hasn't had to dance this much since the last time some of the Paxiwal ambassadors came into town, and she had to entertain them all because they were working on a treaty. She hates dancing. And she's had to dance more with this thing to stay alive and she's never had to dance before. She does not like that. She can only hope that Dandy's doing her part. Because they can't see up there. They don't have time to look up and see if Dandy's on top. They're just trying to stay alive. Fia has at this point pulled back kind of beside behind the towers. The horses are, t- are tied up on the other side of the tower. Luckily the tower didn't fall that way. It was squished to other horses. Uh, but the horses are tied up over there so they can make a break for it on this side if they need to. She's moved back and she's casting her spells. At this point, again, she can see Dandy. She's further back. So she's just trying to fire her magic missiles and such to keep attention away from Dandy, which the thing seems to be ignoring her. At this point, Dandy has climbed up and they can see Dandy run across its shoulder. So it's very square, very uh, barrel-shaped chest. With very thick shoulders, where Darsh could have probably stood up there, it's big enough. If if you want to, she's racing across, even though the thing is moving like this. She's like a tightrope running kind of thing. Sure enough, as she sees the back of the thing's neck area, the back—it's it's more of a flat area. She can see there's a little thing popped up. It's like that's got to be the spot. So she gets over there. The thing swings really hard at Percy, hits him a little bit, takes some damage, but not a whole lot. At that point, though, that was a deep swing, and Dandy, the direction she's running, suddenly goes downhill, and she's starting to slide. So she turns and she's grabbing on, and she manages to grab onto the side of where that thing popped up. But for a moment, she's almost dangling fingers. And the thing went, then it comes back up again. Now it's going to attack with this one. And she's like, ah, now I'm just going to go this way. So she's trying to hold on to that thing for a round or two just to keep from falling off. She'd have to make a couple dexterity checks, I'm sure, just to pull that off. The holes, she couldn't climb in it. It's only a small space about this big. Dandy's small. She had time. She could probably wiggle her way through. But not this thing's moving. She looks down in and sure enough, she can see the keystone. But Fia was right. There's some metal bands around it. She can't just reach in and grab it. She's got to try to pry at least a couple of those off. So she's trying to do that while she's holding on. The second a blade touches one of those things... The harvester becomes aware that she's there. And now it stands up for a second. And now it's trying to reach her. And it can't reach her with the axe. The sickly scythe thing... I always forget which is which. It it can reach that far. So now she's like, ugh, having to dodge... while the thing's trying to shake her off and then slangs. And our heroes, Mercy and Percy, are down there at the bottom... wailing on the thing's legs now without having to dodge... other than its footsteps... Trying to get its attention back on them. But it's it's after Dandy now. Because Dandy's now become the biggest threat. Dandy successfully pries one of those things off. And she tries to shove her dagger and see if she can pop it out. But there are four of those bands and she's got one off. She's going to have to at least get another one of the ones side by side to try to pop it out that direction. So she's in there trying to wedge that thing. But now she's trying to dodge stuff. Um, which it can't reach her real well. It's very hazardous. So she's trying that. At this time, Darsh is coming back into the fight, but in his arms, he's holding Artemis. Mercy and Percy see this, and both of them freak out because Artemis is just covered in blood. They don't know it's all Darsh's, but he's coming fine, and she's unconscious. And there's blood like all over her robes, like she's just soaking in it. She passed out in a puddle of his blood. Darsh's a big guy; there's a lot of blood in there. I'm just saying, there's a lot of blood in there. Crashes. He comes through. And he races behind the tower. Not the direction they are. And he takes Artemis to where the horses are. Doesn't set him right next to the horses. Because they don't want the horses to stampede and run over Artemis. They do put her a ways away from the tower so it doesn't fall on her. But a ways. Sets her down as best he can and then runs back in to try to fight. Because, again, as long as this thing's up, none of them are safe. And so he goes rushing back in. He's no damage at all. Feeling right as rain. His boots he used up, though. He can't charge in again. Not yet. Darsh coming back in. Once again, his sword's back on the ground over there somewhere. Pops out another sword. Remember, he's got that bracelet that holds weapons. He didn't have time to pop one back in. He can throw it down and pop out another one. That's what he does. He pops out another one of his swords. And he goes in there and just, along with Mercy, start drawing some attention. The creature's now kind of torn. It wants, literally, but it wants to get Dandy, but now it's feeling there's a lot of damage being done to its legs. So it's having to alternate, trying to knock them back and do this while they're trying to charge back in again. Dandy manages to pull the second one out of the way, the second tooth, if you will, the the band. And so now she's just trying to wedge it and pop it out. It's tight. And she's got her dagger. She's not worried her dagger is going to break. Her dagger is a very powerful dagger. She's glad she didn't pick the the flaming one because this would be more uncomfortable. But, but she can only do this one-handed because she's having to use her other hand to hold on to this thing as occasionally she gets pulled away. So she's working on it as hard as she can. All this is going on, and Fia, as you can see, is like, what in the world? You're running up there, you got flung away, but then you came back and she's unconscious. They're attacking the heck out of this thing, and now it's like, Fia's like, this would be impressive to anybody watching this. These are some people doing some major damage to a thing that wiped out her entire colony, if you will. Darce charging back in makes a huge difference, though. And they start chopping away at the legs that the thing starts to weaken on one leg. And it's it's not able to move that leg as well. That holds it in place a little better. And Dandy, at this point, gets mad and pulls her feet up and shoves them in the hole. So she's got her feet in there she's got the dagger in between, twisting. So as it's going around, she's using her feet cupped underneath to try to hold her in place. So she's like bull riding, trying to wedge this thing out at this point. And finally, she hears a satisfying pop. And the keystone comes unattached. Hasn't stopped glowing. It's still inside. Dandy reaches in and grabs the thing. It's very hot. Her hand immediately begins to burn. But "Eh," she grabs it again. She's got her gloves on, but it's still hot. She pulls it out as hard as she can, and it feels like things are unattaching from it. There weren't anything. It's magic. But she feels like like things are coming off. like. And when she gets it up there, she just throws it as far as she can. It's like, I just going to get as far away from this neck as possible. The lights on the eyes of the creature begin to blink, and it kind of stops like it's it's not sure what it's supposed to do for a minute. And then the lights of the eyes just fade out. And it starts to tip forward. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's mom's like, Yay! Woo! And they all just have to scatter. And they're running. And they're smart enough not to run towards that. They run to the sides. <laughs> Fia's far enough away with Artemis that she's not a problem. Although the the smashing sound it makes does startle the horses, it does take them a bit of a while to gather the horses back up. But the thing comes crashing to the ground, uh, right at the base of the tower, to the point that another chunk of the tower crumbles inward... There's no reason to go back in there now. The thing's so unsound it could fall if anybody walked in there. Dandy wouldn't go inside. The tower's mostly destroyed, but the creature's on the ground with no sign of life. Now, Percy immediately asks Darsh where Artemis is. He said over there by the horses. Go check on him. Percy takes off. Darsh and Mercy start looking for Dandy. As the thing was getting close to the ground, Dandy prepares herself. And she jumped off and rolled. She took a little bit of damage, but Dandy's good at this stuff. And she manages to be okay, just a couple bumps and bruises. They all have a couple healing potions on them. She pops one of those real quick, and she feels okay enough until you know, she needs better later. They talk for just a moment. The thing's head just creaks a little bit, and they're all like, ah... All right, I can't take that anymore. And they go over there and they begin to start chopping at the thing and keep severing and severing and smashing as best they could to try to separate the head from the body. They can't. It's too well welded. Um, but they do go inside that back shoulder hatch and they make sure they just destroy everything inside of there they can. So if some idiot did come back with that keystone and put it in there, it's not going to do anything. Is their hope, anyways. The Harvester has finally hit the ground and it's gone. Artemis wakes up a couple of hours later, feeling still completely drained. Happy to hear that Darsh is okay. Um, Proceeds to get chewed out a little bit by Artemis and Percy for putting herself in such a dangerous situation. I mean, the passing out part, not the leaving the shield. They told her to do that. But they find out that you know everybody's okay. I already mentioned that they took everything out of the tower that they wanted to, put it in the chest of holding, so there was no reason for them to go back in. They're exhausted. They all are. They've all got some injuries, and Artemis is, is too weak to heal anybody. But nobody wants to stay here next to this thing, so they decide they're going to try to push on the rest of the day and camp later in the night. Try to go as far as they can away from it. They only travel about four or five hours before exhaustion takes them. They're like, we got to find a place. They find a small group of trees. They could try to hide in in case the thing did happen to come by, did wake up or anything. And there's also this concern, are there any small ones out there? That's a problem, though they don't find any. They, at this point, are avoiding any of the old, moldy farmsteads they come across, in case there is a little one out there somewhere. They find a place to camp for the night and rest. They've survived, and they managed to free Fia, who has no idea what she's supposed to do. She thought she knew what she was going to do with her life, become a wizard, and then maybe go off and train with other wizards. Mercy talks about how there's a mage tower in their city, and that um, if she would like for you know more training and session and even if she doesn't know where she go that's a place that might work for her to start um, that you know they can hook her up with a reference or whatever to get her in there uh, but that they're not going that direction first and they explain what they're going to do drow some of their history none of the serif part of course but some of their history who they are what they do what they've done you know, without trying to be braggy and like we're going up here and we're not going to tell everybody who we really are but we need to find out if these drow are a real problem or not like the drought we know, if they're just regular drought and they're a problem, we need to take care of it either way. She's like, Well, I, I don't have anything else to go towards at this point. She goes, If it's all right, I'll, I'll come with you. And, you know, unless something better comes, you know, she doesn't mean it in a bad way, but unless I, I get an opportunity to build life somewhere else, I'll stay with you until you go home. And, and then I'd like to speak to the folks of these towers. They sound like, you know, you're allies with them. They're good mages. I have no problem with them. Sophia joins the group at this point. So that makes six of them now, because I remembered Percy. (laughs) And the six of them are going to be making their way towards this city to check on their drought problem. They travel on, and they travel for several weeks without any real issues, right? Um, It's not long before she can say um, she knows the land, right? So after a day, she's like, okay, this is not the land that I'm used to that should be here. Like, these trees, this is, shouldn't be here, this should be a valley that goes off. And they're like, okay, cool, merge worlds. All right, we've hit a spot then where now it's another piece of land. So at this point, they're no longer where she's you knows. Which at the same time, again, there's always that fear that somehow that thing comes back alive again. It never seemed to leave the land new, so if nothing else... They may be at least safe for a while. They're going to probably plan on coming back through that way to at least try to check on it again to make sure it hasn't re risen and to let any new communities they come across know about it just to be on the safe side. So they travel for several weeks without any issue. They end up passing through a wetlands, which is something I haven't put them through uh, very much. Uh, If you're not familiar with the wetlands, it's... Not a swamp or a marsh or anything like that. It's just very wet land. And as much so that there's dry land and such, but you can just see what almost look like a whole bunch of swimming pools. And so you're, going, you're trying to stay on the high land in between it. It's not murky swamp and that kind of stuff. But you can have things like crocodiles, lots of birds, turtles, things like that. So there will be things of that nature in there. They don't come across anything big. They see some crocodiles and such. But nothing that's an actual threat that they have to have a combat. Um, I would say that if this was an adventure I was still playing the, through them, they'd fight a giant crocodile here or something. You know, I would have a uh, a random encounter. Cause it's important to have a random encounter every so often. Keep them on their toes. Is the water knee-deep? What a great question. It is for Darsh. <laughs> Sometimes. But they managed to make it through there. It slows them down a little bit, but they pass through. And finally, after several weeks, they come across a road. Oh, a road. This road appears to be going northwest, the direction that they want to go. But where they're coming across it, it seems like it's almost just from looking at, like it's almost like coming down like a backwards uh, letter. No, let me see. That'd be a rightwards C. Backwards C. So uh, it's it's going from northwest to southwest, like it's looping around something. Like there's a mountain there. There isn't, but that's kind of how it's designed. The road is going northwest, though. They decide to get on the road and continue that direction. Because that's the direction they want to go anyways. They only know the approximate area. Remember, Aaron from from before only gave them a little bit of, of, of vague information that he had. He had never been there either. So they travel on the road for a day or so until they finally come to a village. It's finally a place with actual living people. And they're, as you can imagine, pretty stinky, right? Like, they, you know, they bathed. they haven't had, slept in a real bed in a month and a half at this point. Like, they would like to get a good night's rest. So they make their way into the small town. It's, just, it's a small village. It's not big, but there's an inn there. And they make their way inside. As always, everyone's like, <gasps> Minotaur! Oh, a cleric. Like, it's, it's just that kind of thing. And they immediately always do the same thing they always do. This is Artemis. She's a cleric of healing. We're her escorts. You know, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, big guy to protect her. That makes sense," because again, they're giving their names because they're, they're so far away from their, their land at this point. They doubt anybody up here knows them. They're not throwing last names out or anything like that. I am married to is Mercy, as Darsh. You know, we protect her. We're he-, and they say straight up, we're heading towards a city in this direction. We heard record or we heard information that there was some some trouble some drow up there, and they're offering some good money and. Uh, You know, the lady here is all about the light and taking out the evil stuff and some money on the side is not a bad deal, so yeah, we're heading that direction. Because they look like mercenaries, you know? But with a cleric in their group. Some clerics are mercenaries. Um, Let's see. Do I have a name for it here? Alright. So they make it this small town. Uh, It's not important enough that I gave it a name, but it's a small town. Uh, It's got all the basic stores in it. You know, it's got a armor. got a website. There's a place they can buy a horse for Fia because she's been riding with Dandy for the last long period of time. It's the first time they found a place with a horse. So they're able to get Fia a horse here, uh, which is going to make travel a little bit easier and faster as well. Um, so they make arrangements for that, and they make arrangements for room at the inn. And uh, they are kind of chilling there, having a hot meal. You know what I mean? Kind of that whole, we're going to go to bed early. Okay, we are. Darsh and Mercy are probably going to stay down here and, and get a little drunk. But the rest of us are going to go rest while they come down here. Because they always like to try to drink each other. And they don't get to see each other all that often anymore. So the competitive nature sometimes gets the best of them. And Darsh loves it because he'll, he'll swear up and down. He goes, I don't care how many Minotaurs I've drank with. Mercy will outdrink you, man. It's not going You're not going to do it. I've never seen so much alcohol go in such a little person. I don't even understand how it all fits in there. Kind of thing. They're going to get a good night's rest. So they're sitting there eating their meal before the festivities I just spoke about. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hanging out, resting. And they've talked with the innkeeper. Hey, we're looking. at, And he goes, yeah, the city you're looking for, you yeah, know, the one you're going to is named Star's Reach. And they're like, oh, that's an interesting name. Why is it called Star's Reach? Like, well, I guess originally it's a, it's a, it was a valley, which is a little bit of, a, of an upskirt. I guess when they first, you know, this is generations ago is the legend. Because this village is from the same world as it. So... They're, it's not like new Merge World combo. This village is the outskirts of what, what they know. Um, the innkeeper was like, oh, originally they, when they got there, there was some weird stones there that looked kind of interesting and uh, you know, kind of like a Stonehenge-looking kind of thing. And so the city was built around it. Um, but it was always cool that when, when you go there certain times of the year, like moonlight would come shining into it and such. And, and it was like, would be like not like images of stars and things, almost like a, a little like space 3D thing would pop up over the stones. No one knew if, if what it was for, or what to do. It was ancient when they got there, but from what he's heard, that hasn't worked since merged worlds merged because now the stars are all in different places. So at this point, it's just an oddity. But it was called Stars Reach, and a small village started there, and then over the years, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And now it's huge. And yeah, we've heard that they're definitely looking for help. So yeah. They're like, excellent. Well, we're going to head that way, but we've been traveling a long time. Uh, We'd like to get some rooms and rest for the night. He's like, well, I would love to take your money. Sure. So they're sitting there eating. They talked to the innkeeper, had conversations and such. And they're just kind of relaxing. When a gentleman comes over to their table, introduces himself as a man named Warren. And he's like, May I, may I have a moment of your time? May, may I speak with you? They're like, yeah, sure. And he grabs an empty chair from a table nearby and kind of pulls it up. He introduces himself as Warren. Says that he is, uh, some people would call him a mercenary, uh, but he prefers private security. Um, he basically takes jobs protecting caravans from city to city, um, and especially currently with the threat of the drow and such going on, needs for his profession have definitely increased. He says there's actually a caravan coming from the southwest. It's going to be coming up and curving, like I said. And it should be here in three or four days. I'm to meet it here and escort it the rest of the way. Because the drow issue doesn't really go anywhere past here. It's just up in closer to where the drow are living. He's like, I'm quite familiar. I'm from this area. I spent my whole life here. He's like, there's a a rather large caravan coming. And I've taken... I've taken the job to uh, protect it the rest of the way. But I'm short a few people. And I heard you guys were wanting to head that direction. And you all look... uh... He's looking at Darsh. Because he's sitting sitting down. Darsh is taller than this guy standing up. He's like, you all look uh, capable. Um, Since you're heading that way anyways... I mean, if you wouldn't mind hanging out for a few days... I I could definitely see that you get some... uh, some decent pay, I'll head up that way to begin with. I mean, you know, if you if you don't mind, you like make a little bit of money. I heard you saying you guys were, you know, kind of mercenaries for hire anyways. Um, I doubt the drow situation's going to change that much in a few days. Make yourself some extra coins on your way there. And definitely, um, coming into the city with a known caravan, definitely is uh, going to be some points to maybe help you with the, the local mayor in the Merchants Guild. And they're like, okay, They're like, well, let's think about it for a minute. It's like, okay, cool. Give some offers, some coins. This is what I pay you, so on and so forth. And they're like, we don't need that money. I mean, in the chest of holding, we have probably a thousand times that amount of money just chilling in there in case we need it. But they're like, one thing you mentioned is true. That would look good if they're coming to give us off. Hey, we're mercenaries. Taking a job to protect, since we're coming here to take a job to protect everywhere, that could look good for us. could be our ticket into there even if you we know, we don't do anything, at least you know we show up with the caravan, we're not going to look as four strange people just showing up. Because they understand... Not four people, six people now, because there's Percy But, you know, it's a group of people and a darsh. And a darsh always gains attention. Darsh is always the bad attention, while Artemis is the good attention. They kind of offset each other. So this might be the opportunity that they need to get into the city a little bit more easily. And... This Warren gentleman seems friendly enough. He didn't seem skeezy in any way, right? He seemed like a nice guy, like a guy legitimately looking to hire people to go to the city, right? It's not like he's trying to get them away from the city and rob them somewhere. He's like, I want you to help me escort this very large caravan of goods to the city you're going to anyways, and I'll pay you. And they're like, we think this is is a good idea. We can take that. Stay here a couple days. Lord knows we could use the rest anyways. Pick up some supplies. Maybe use this as opportunity to get some more information from Warren and the locals about what's going on here. Right? Because we've heard the drow. We've heard the rumors. We're in the area now. Maybe we can get some more concrete information. Get some clues of what's happening. So when we get in there, we're a step ahead of where we need to be already. Because if, if this quest is let's just go fight and either kill or chase off a bunch of drow... So be it. But it would also help to know how many there are. (laughs) Are we about to go take on 100 drow? We might have a problem there. We do have a darch, but we have a problem there. So, you know, learning some more about the actual what's going on from people that are living it could be very beneficial. And Warren, a guy who's protecting people because of this, probably has some really good information that they could use. Um, And so they agree to take on. He's like, yeah, we'll stay here a couple of days. They haggle a little bit, make it seem like, you know, they push for a little bit more. But enough so that when it's done, Warren feels like he got a good deal. He's like, oh, man, I got this Minotaur and these warrior peoples and a cleric of healing. And I would have paid twice. You know, he feels like he got a deal, but he paid more than he originally did. You know what I mean? He feels like he did a really good job here. And they're like, we don't need the money, but we still got to make it look realistic. So they decide to stay in town a couple of days until the caravan arrives and then join the caravan heading to the city of Star's Reach. And then once they get there, they're going to do their best to find whoever's in charge and get all the information from them that they can and let them know that they're here to hopefully take care of that drow situation. But before they take out that drow situation, they would very much like to know if the drows they're looking for are part of that situation. That's the information they're looking for right now. Any clue? Are there any drow and skeletons? Zombies? Any undead problems in the area? They know they're—they know that the deacon's cousin, the evil half-drow, is a necromancer. Send all those undead at them. Some undead in the area would be a great clue that that's the drow we're looking for. Maybe they can describe the drow Dandy's looking for. Have you seen anyone that looks like that in their party? See if we can get a little more information about what's going on. Because either way, we're going to help these people out. I mean, we're not going to tolerate you know any village city or whatever being you know attacked by anybody especially when it gets to the point that it's killing innocent people and kids and such that's not cool which they heard that remember there were some innocent nobles kids were killed in one of these raids and they're like we can't have that regardless of it but it would also be very nice to know if what we're looking for is here so they tell Warren yes we'll stay here a couple of days and then when that ends we will go with you on this caravan Warren is, again, very excited to hear this. He says definitely he's got a group of people, but it's harder to get people now. When this first drought situation first started, it was actually the other way around. It's easy to find people who want to work. Yeah, I'll take jobs protecting caravans. It was good pay. People were worried. But over time, the drought started getting more and more violent. It came from just basic raids to actually people dying. People like, it's not worth the money anymore became harder. There's a lot of really cool information that they're going to get from Warren um, about the situation and you know kind of everything that's going on. And they'll get that from him in the next episode of Merge Worlds. Because it is 10.22pm my time. We've run two hours and 25 minutes, basically. Right about the two and a half. I think this is a good spot because the next episode we're going to be getting by them getting a lot more of the actual local story, and the local information of what's going on, that'll uh, help them find the problem and get it taken care of. So, um, the drow and such. So, yeah, there'll be a lot of asking and discussion with Warren and some of the locals, and they may even get a little mini side quest while they're in town. All right. So I'm excited about that. Um, Now, again, Merged World stories are every other Thursday, so next week there will not be a Merged Worlds, my intention uh, is to do another episode of Behind the Dice. Uh, it'll be next Thursday. I do have to stress that next Wednesday, I am having a small outpatient surgery to have a kidney stone removed. So assuming there's no problems there that I'm just not capable of streaming Thursday, I fully plan on streaming Thursday. Um, but I did want to throw that out there as a uh, just in case. Something happens. I'm too weak, tired, sick, whatever the case is. There's a problem. Uh, I will definitely let everyone know as early as I possibly can. Um, But my intention is to do Behind the Dice next week. Next week's Behind the Dice we're going to be talking in depth about the Pantheon of Gods for Merge Worlds because I'm going to be going through and working out how clerics on Merge Worlds are going to work now that I'm adopting 5th edition. Uh, I've mentioned it before, 5th edition clerics is the one thing I dislike the most about 5th edition. Um... And it really messes up the way I've done clerics previously. So I'm going to be going in and redoing that. uh, Not by taking away every fifth, but taking away some of the fifth and making it work with my gods and clerics ways that works. While at the same time still allowing the characters to not lose all the stuff that makes it fun to be a cleric. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. Some of the gods. We'll be talking about some of their symbols Um, and, uh, especially if you're fifth edition, man, swing on by Maybe you will be able to help me come up, find some answers I'm looking for, but we're going to do that. Plus I'll be talking about merge worlds and characters and backstories and showing off some of the minis and things that I have. So there'll be a lot of opportunity to, uh, ask questions about merge worlds or the characters or anything of that nature. I want it to be a, an open discussion, a podcast type of thing while doing D and D stuff. Uh, maybe show you some more maps and things I'm working on. So come on by if you like D&D. Uh, or if you like Merge Worlds, you have questions. As long as it doesn't ruin the story moving forward, I have no problem answering your questions about anything Merge Worlds. Um, but thank you very much for coming by and hanging with me again and letting me tell this story. I think you all know how important it is to me to get to be able to do this. And I only get to do that because you guys keep coming and watching. So thank you very much. Um, if you enjoyed today's stream or this story, whether you're watching it today, tomorrow, or forever down the road, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind... Clicking the like button. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe. Um, Welcome as well to Michael, our newest member. Thank you very much for joining our membership program. I appreciate that, and we are happy to have you. Uh, You're only familiar with Draven Edition. (laughs) Well, we're getting closer to that. I'm going to have to convert some 5th Edition stuff that I just don't like. But there's a lot of 5th Edition stuff that I do like. So I'm not, just, I'm just, I want to make, it's going to be a homebrew. I'm a homebrew DM. I've always have been. So been it's, it's, it people have fun. So I'm going to work with it. Well, we call that a day. I will be streaming again tomorrow. What is tomorrow? Friday? Yes. Tomorrow I'm over on Twitch at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, Friday and Saturday night. p.m. may start a little early Saturday. I think I'm going to do an extra long stream. And I I hope this doesn't come across as bad because I don't want it to. Um, I just found out today that I have to come up with $500 to pay for my surgery, which is next Wednesday by next Wednesday. So I'm going to be doing an extra long stream Saturday, trying to come up with some fun games and stuff, see if I can maybe uh, run a, a, a Draven charity stream, which I hate to do. I've always tried not to do that. I may try to do that on Saturday. So I may be streaming all day Saturday on Twitch. So even if you just want to come by and hang out, that would be awesome. Come on by. Bring your friends. Bring your grandma. I'm sure she's awesome. But thank you for watching again. Thank you for letting me share Merge Worlds and being a part of it and enjoying it as much as you guys have been letting me know you have. That means the world to me. All right? You folks have yourselves a wonderful day. And hopefully we will see you again very soon.